four, three, two. All the way from Tucson, Arizona. Dr. Weil, how are you, sir? I am good. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Pleasure. You come highly recommended by many human beings that I know. Wow, well, glad to hear it. How do you uh, how do you get such a fine reputation? Well, I've been doing the same things for a long time, just putting one foot ahead of the other and uh, saying what I know to be true. And uh, and pushing matcha. Everybody <laughs> likes matcha. Who doesn't like matcha tea? This well, is your stuff. Yeah, but you know, a lot of people don't have only tasted really bad matcha. Because, oh, okay. Enlighten me. What's the, uh, what's the you know, it's powdered tea, and it's very, very finely powdered, and it's very labor intensive to prepare, and uh, it's got such a huge surface area that it oxidizes very quickly. So if it's not properly packed and stored, it loses its brilliant green color. It turns yellow green or gray green. It gets bitter and loses its taste. And I got to say, most of the matcha that I see served in this country is of that sort and many oh. people have never had the good stuff what's the benefits of matcha i know there's first of all it's, it's beautiful i mean i've never seen a green color like that it's mm. just amazing and the flavor is amazing but it's the only preparation of tea in which the whole leaf is consumed uh and mm. and it, it's grown under special conditions the leaves are shaded uh deep shade for the last three weeks before harvest so the in response to that the leaves produce more chlorophyll more antioxidants more the good stuff so it's got uh, you know much more of the things that you want and this has like a pop top like pringles <laughs> yeah right? is that the, so the matcha's in it's there it's got to stay fresh and after you right. open it you want to keep it in the freezer and, oh, and okay. yep freezer and you got to freeze it and you should sift it so it doesn't form lumps and then you whisk it with that traditional bamboo whisk or you buy a little electric whisker ah. and you can whisk it in hot water or cold water and it's very yummy and what, what what does it do for you? Like, what's the good? Well, you've got it's got caffeine, of course, right. so you get stimulated by it. But it's also got L-theanine, which is this relaxant compound that modifies the effect of ca caffeine and produces a state of relaxed alertness. Mm. So it doesn't have the jangling effect of coffee, right? And uh, you're getting all of these antioxidant benefits that are well documented in tea. Anyway, I love it. It's a great thing. Anytime you get one of these little whisks. Cool. It's like a real bamboo. Made one. from one piece of bamboo. It's a miracle of uh, Japanese craftsmanship. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, um, how often do you drink this stuff? I have a bowl of it every morning, and sometimes, really? yeah, and sometimes I have a glass of uh, iced matcha later in the day, especially in warm weather. You're just a matcha fiend. I love it. It's a good thing. I first tasted it when I was 17. I was an exchange student in Japan. Uh, in 1959, I lived with a family outside of Tokyo. We had no language in common. And on the second night I was there, the mother took me next door to her neighbors who practiced tea ceremony. And they did this thing for me. And I was fascinated by that whisk and the color of the matcha. And I thought it was great. You know, I never thought I'd be able to get it over here. Yeah, well, so you, you import this stuff yourself? Is that what you I started a company called uh, Matcha Kari. We've got the URL matcha.com, and I went to uh, Japan to Uji, which is a little town outside of Kyoto, where, which is the center of um, the best tea production in Japan. And I sourced really good matcha. You know, there are many grades of matcha. The most, the highest are too expensive to use for everyday use. They're really? Just, yeah, I mean, phenomenal. Like how expensive? expensive? Like truffles or yeah, caviar or something? In, like yeah, that? really expensive. So you, I've tried to find the the best matcha that is affordable and uh, make it available to people here. So like the highest level stuff, how much would it cost for a cup of tea? Hard to estimate for a cup. You know, it possibly, there's a preparation called thick tea in Japan where they use three times the amount of the powder mm. and probably one bowl of that stuff, which is shared by several people. I don't know. It could be a hundred dollars a bowl. Whoa. Yeah. Really? Yeah. For tea. Yeah. Why, why did it catch on in Japan like that? 
it's always been. You know, it has been in Japan for a very long time, and, and uh, this powdered tea preparation was originally taken up by Zen monks uh, to help them stay awake during long hours of meditation. It was also associated with uh, samurai and became the tea ceremony developed around that. Is there anything that uh, is similar to it? Is it like yerba mate or guarana or any other well, kind these of are all stimulants? Well, ca- they're all caffeine plants, but mm-hmm. in my experience... Tea, I think, and it's primarily because of that L-theanine content, mm. uh, the effect is mellower of caffeine. So you get stimulated, you get alert, but it doesn't have the jangling effect of a lot of these other caffeine beverages. Mm. Do you drink regular coffee as well? No, I've never no? drunk coffee. Wow. Who I think I was turned off because my parents, when I was growing up, drank really strong black coffee with ah. no sugar or cream. I couldn't imagine why people would drink Savages. That. Yeah. Those people, there were different people. Did you grow up in a northern climate? I grew up in Philadelphia. Yeah. See, it's when it's cold outside, uh-huh. the people, they drink that black coffee. Uh-huh. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Just makes you angry at the world. Yeah. Dark black burnt coffee. I like bright green shining right. matcha. Isn't it interesting that things that are good for you, many things that are good for you, like bell peppers or something like that, they have a, a beautiful color to them. Well, they you know, you all these, uh, the health benefits of fruits and vegetables, a lot of them have to do with these pigments. Mm. Uh, and the pigments, the plants produce, they're part of their own defensive system, and they do good things in us. And uh, one piece of advice that I often give people is you should try to eat across the color spectrum every mm. day. Think about, you know, what did you eat today that was red, what was purple, what was green, what was right, all of these have different benefits. Is that uh, a scientific perspective? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. These are categories of uh, phytochemicals or protective phytonutrients, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are these pigments that give uh, fruits and vegetables their bright colors. Do you think that people should vary those colors on any given day? I think think as as much as you can across any day, try to eat across the color spectrum. That's Mm -hmm. a good thing to aim for. Okay, so just... Just get as many of them as in, in yeah. as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So do you you take this approach with fruits, with, with all sorts of different things? Yeah. Yeah. Brightly colored stuff is good. Do you eat meat or chicken or I don't. Or fish? I'm, I'm fish and vegetables. Just fish and vegetables, yeah. yeah. Um, now, when you, you – you, one of the things I'm super concerned with, and I've been more concerned with the more I pay attention to it, is sustainability when it comes to fish. Absolutely. It seems like, uh, especially ocean fish, where you know, human beings are just terrible monsters. You know, there's a famous oceanographer in this country. Sylvia Earle, who was the woman that held a record for the deepest uh, dive, and she came up to me at a meeting once and pleaded with me not to recommend that people eat fish. She said there just aren't going to be any in the future. And that's probably true. Mm. Uh, you know, probably the future is going to be farmed fish, and that can be done in a responsible way. Yeah, You can get the good guides. One is put out by the Monterey Aquarium. You can get a wallet card that lists, that lists fish and, and shellfish and rates them both by toxicity and sustainability. Mm. And that's a good guide to follow. Yeah. Um, mollusks? You eat mollusks? I, do, I yeah. eat uh, – yeah. I, I eat uh, – I like oysters uh, and scallops. I eat them. What is, what has led you to not eat chicken or fish or, or beef rather? It's been a long time, and uh, let's see. I was I think twenty eight, and I uh, was interested in yoga. And people that I knew who were doing yoga had become vegetarian, mm. and I saw friends of mine that had become vegetarian. I thought, well, I'll just try it for a little while, and it agreed with me. I didn't eat fish for a number of years, and I found that made tra- international travel very difficult, especially to Japan. And uh, and then I was reading about all the research on good stuff and fish, and I started eating fish, and that, that way of eating 
agrees with me real well. Yeah, um, it, it is a thing, uh, an agree with you thing, right? It, yeah. it really depended upon the person's... Very individual. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to give blanket rules, except I have no problem telling people to stay away from refined, processed, and manufactured food. That's the bad stuff. Yeah, that's a really good, clear thing that everybody can kind of apply in their life. But yeah. as far as, like, what is going to work for you, there's a lot of trial and error involved, isn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. you got to do experiments, pay attention, see what works for you. Yeah. Now, you practice, what would you, how would you call it, integrative medicine? Integrative medicine. Yeah. Well, how would you define that? Well, it's medicine of the future. And, uh, uh, you know, the short answer... Jamie, we're in the future. <laughs> short All answer right. is it's the intelligent combination of conventional and alternative medicine. Uh, but really, it's, it's a system that focuses on the body's ability to heal itself, that looks at people as whole persons, not just physical bodies, uh, that takes account of all aspects of lifestyle and understanding health and illness, uh, values the practitioner-patient relationship, and makes use of all therapies, no matter where they come from, that show reasonable evidence of efficacy and are not going to hurt people. Mm. So I am absolutely convinced this is the way out of the healthcare crisis. I've been training doctors and other health professionals in it for many years now. Now, when you say the body's ability to heal itself, how would you accentuate that? With <laughs> this, to me, is the thing that's most missing from medical education. Uh, I, I, I think the only time I heard the word healing used in medical school was in, the, in wound healing, which mm -hmm. in my first year course in histology. Uh, to me, the most marvelous thing about our bodies is that they have the capacity to heal themselves. You get a cut, you can watch it heal. And that, right. that happens throughout the body. You know, the DNA molecule, this is just a big molecule on the border of life and non-life. It has within it the ability to know, in quotes, when it's been injured, if a cosmic ray knocks a part of it out. Instantly, it begins to manufacture repair enzymes that... <coughs> that duplicate the missing piece and paste it in. And you can mm. see that same thing at any level of biological organization. And to me, that's where good medicine should start, that the body has within it the ability to maintain equilibrium, heal itself. Now, knowing that the body has this ability, what, what do you do to accentuate that? Well, if I, when I listen to a patient and hear their story, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why is healing not happening here? Right. What, what can I do from outside that can facilitate that? I can't put it into somebody, but I can help it along by mm -hmm. either supplying energy, missing materials, remove obstacles to it. You know, like you have a wound that doesn't heal, maybe there's a foreign body in it. You remove that mm. and it heals. Now, um, when you have people that come to you that have issues, like say if someone comes to you and they have a back issue, yeah, I got, I got a little bit of lower back pain. Do you approach that from uh, in terms of like how they're eating, how they're living their lifestyle first? I would question them about lifestyle for sure, but mm -hmm. uh, you know I'm a great follower of a, a man who died recently named John Sarno, who was mm, in, and okay. you know about yeah. his work. Sure, uh, he has some great books, Mind Over Back Pain, Healing Back Pain, and his main belief, which I totally agree with, is that the vast majority of back pain is muscle spasm which originates in the mind. Mm. Uh, and it may localize at an area of physical injury, but it, the, the injury is not the cause of it. You can live with a slipped disc and have no pain. Uh, you look at x-rays of How people. How do you define slip, though? What does that mean? Does it well, mean bulging? Does yeah, that bulging, mean herniated? Bulging or herniated. Right. That does not necessarily cause pain. Uh, and unless there's associated neurological symptoms, you don't want to do anything about that. Right. It's, unless it's pressing on Exactly. Yeah. Right. Now, um, John Sarno's idea was that it's a lot of stress and anxiety and a lot of different psychological factors that are right. causing and this Right, and I'm sure he was some kind of incredible healer. He, mm -hmm. he required that 
people who came to him come to two evening lectures that he gave. That's all. Many people who did that lost their back pain forever just listening to him. So other people have had that happen just reading his book. Uh, yeah, I've read a little bit of it. You know, I've had like legitimate injuries. So yeah. whenever I hear someone say, oh, it's all in your not, head. No, it's not all in your head. Yeah. It's in your head and, your, and your body. Yeah. It's in your head and your muscles. And mm. the, the this problem of muscle spasm, which shuts off blood supply and it's a vicious cycle, mm -hmm. that'll localize at an area you've had physical injury. Right. But the pain is not coming from the injury. It's coming from muscle spasm. And that's controlled by... Of greatly influenced by the mind. So when you when your back is like ah and seizes up, that is a muscle spasm, and that's incredibly painful. And it's located in the area of the injury, so it Correct. can confuse you into thinking it's the injury that's causing you pain. What's in and fact, leads people into getting physical interventions that yes. may not be necessary. Yeah, I'm a big uh, believer in waiting, especially with spinal stuff. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. They always want to fuse you and <laughs> cut you, and you look at here's a Another interesting thing, you can look at x-rays of people's spines that look so horrible, you can't imagine that they can move. And they mm -hmm. have no, nothing, no symptoms. And you can look at other x-rays that look perfect and people are disabled by pain. So there's a very low correlation between physical findings and subjective experience. Now, what does Sarno recommend? I, I never really He got... recommends going about your business. Going you know, about your business. Yeah, ignoring it, going about your business, and if possible, try to figure out you know, what, what message you know, your mind is sending down there. But basically it's reassurance that it'll go away on its own. So when he does these lectures and he has people cures him of it, is just he just reassuring them that everything's going <laughs> to no, be okay? No, he's explaining this process. of mm -hmm. He calls it tension myositis syndrome, and he explains oh. the mechanism of how it works. One friend of mine, he was in his late 20s, uh, played about a basketball, had a you know, very – serious herniated discs. He was within uh, hours of having neurological surgery, spinal surgery. And I yelled at him to read this book and see Sarno, who was in New York. And he said, I don't believe any of that. It's all bullshit. And I said, go, go see him. So we went to see him. Oh, we went to the evening lectures, thought this was nonsense, uh, went home, was having dinner and realized his back pain was gone. Never had surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, really. No, I, there's got to be something to that, right? There's some, there's something to the placebo effect, oh. right? So if, there, if, if that is a real thing, if you can convince your body that it's got the medicine that it needs and it starts to heal even though there's no medicine, there's got to be something that is working <laughs> against you as well with the wrong mindset, right? Yeah, look, it's sense? funny to me to hear people rediscovering the placebo effect now. I, I wrote a book in 1983 called Health and Healing. I had two chapters in there on placebos. And what I wrote is that the, the greatest problem is that we – you know, when we talk about placebos, it's in phrases like, how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? The most right. interesting word there is just. Right. Or we have to rule out the placebo effect. Right. We should be ruling it in, man. That's the meat of medicine. That's pure healing from within, mediated by belief, yeah. unmixed up with the direct effects of treatment. That's what you want to make happen more of the time. It just is a mind fuck for a lot of people because they're like, how am I tricking myself into getting better? Why can't I just do it? <laughs> because that ha must have something to do with the structure of the brain, that the part of the brain in which our will is, is doesn't connect directly to the machinery of the body, to the mm. autonomic nervous system. So you have to find some way of getting around that. One way is to project belief onto something external and then let it work for you. Yeah. 
But that's so strange that the mind works that way. It would seem like, wouldn't it be an evolutionary advantage just have it at access? You know, like, sure, that'd be nice. But that's yeah. the same thing. You know, it's a, a similar problem to why can't you just get high without taking a drug? The high is in your brain, not in the drug. The drug is a trigger that releases it. Why can't we just sit down and say, well, I'm going to be high for the next 10 minutes? Mm. It's the same thing. We don't have access to those controls. It just seems like that one, though healing yeah and getting better that one seems like it's something that we should as a culture concentrate on yet for sure <laughs> what we really concentrate on is actual medicine but one way to concentrate on that is by giving people greater confidence in their body's ability to do that mm, and doctors okay. have great power to do that because patients project a lot of belief on them right i've had many patients over the years who said that the most important thing i did for them was that i was the only doctor who told them they could get better i mean astonishing Mm, yeah. Is it because doctors are just seeing too many patients and they're overwhelmed and they got legal bills and they have... I think some... I, I've thought about this a lot. And I, yeah, I, there's also the negative side of this. I've seen what... Uh, there's something called medical hexing in which doctors say things that actually interfere with healing or cause people to get worse. And I think a lot of this is done unconsciously. Mm. Uh, so here's one of my thoughts. In their training... Um, doctors see a very skewed sample of sick people. They see very sick people in hospitals. And in that group, healing is less likely to happen. But if you look at the total spectrum of illness, the vast majority of things get better on their own. So I think, you know, observing in yourself, wound healing is a good one to start with, to get greater confidence in your body's ability to do things. That's really valuable. So, but this, obviously, you're not talking about catastrophic injuries. You're just talking about general wellness. I think even in the case of, of catastrophic injury, this stuff operates. I worked a lot with hypnotherapists over the years. And one of, the, one of my colleagues uh, did a lot of work in training paramedics to be really careful about what you say around unconscious people who have been massively injured. Uh, you know, when the, if, a, if a paramedic takes an automobile accident victim and they're putting them in and says, this one's a goner. That is a bad thing. You know, the unconscious oh, mind hears wow. that. On, and on the other hand, you say something opposite to a person. You can see cases where you can stop bleeding in unconscious people severely injured just by giving them suggestions. Whoa. Yeah. So when you're saying someone's a goner, you trigger stress or you trigger helplessness? Like what, well, what is happening? Well, to have a medically trained person tell mm -hmm. you that you're not going to live, that's, right. a, that's a curse. Yeah. It's a it's, medical hex. How strange is it that sometimes your life is hanging on the border of you believing you're going to be okay and you believing you're not going to be okay? So you want to be very careful about you know whose hands you place yourself in. Yes. You never want to stay in treatment with a doctor who thinks you can't get better. A negative doctor. Yeah. Well, doctors are just like every other right. occupation. There's people that are really good at it and are really concentrated and focused, and there's people that are half-assing it. Well, the ones I train through our University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine get it. You know, we're putting out, we've graduated about 1,600 physicians now from very intensive training. They're in practice all over the country teaching other people. This is a good thing. Now, when you say integrative medicine, when they're in practice, are they essentially general practitioners? No, and we, then... we've trained people from all specialties. Any specialty ah, okay. you can name, we've trained them. So orthopedic surgeons. Yep. Any... Neurologists, dermatologists, anything you can whatever name. Whatever it is. Yeah. And so you try to tend to look at them we teach them all the things they didn't get in medical school nutrition mind-body interactions right. uh, strengths and weaknesses of alternative medicine herbal medicine all that like say someone comes to you and maybe they have a bad case of psoriasis or some yeah. autoimmune issue like that 
prime prime target for mind-body medicine, for traditional Chinese medicine, which often works well in, in that. Dietary change, put people on an anti-inflammatory diet, use of natural products that reduce inflammation. So there's a wide range of things to choose from. And this does not reject conventional treatment. You know, mm. it, it, we may use conventional medication, but if you do, I recommend using the lowest dose of the least potent agent. Start off with that, and you can ramp up if you need to. Well, a lot of people, and me, I'm definitely guilty of this. They hear terms like holistic or uh, Eastern medicine or Chinese yeah. medicine. You go, bullshit, <laughs> right? Well, I have a good bullshit detector, too. And okay. uh, so I'm really careful about what I you know, accept and what I don't. Um, what, what do you not buy into? Like when you see your bullshit detector, like what, where are you? All right, I'll give you an example. I've, you know, I've, uh, I'm not, I can't see any basis for crystal healing. Uh, oh, bro, I got like, a crystal in my pocket right now. Yeah, exactly. Damn. All right, well, too bad. Damn. How about the colonic irrigation people? Oh, that yeah. Tell, that you, seems... tell you that they see, uh, you know, watermelon seeds coming out and you haven't eaten a watermelon in months. That's bullshit. The, the lining yeah. of the GI tract sloughed off and is regenerated every 24 hours. There's no yeah. way that things can get encrusted there. Yeah. That's bullshit. a weird one, the colonic yeah. thing, because your body has all this natural bacteria that you're supposed to keep in there, right? Not only keep in there, we're finding out that that's like more and more a really important determinant of everything, of general health, of mental health, too. Fascinating. Yeah. Whose idea was it to start doing those colonics? Uh, that must go way back. That's kind of like, uh, you know. It's a wacky idea. Yeah. Pump some water up yeah, there. Yeah. See what's up. Yeah. And you have to stand there. While... And it gets, it's addictive, too. I see the, people really? get addicted to this. Yes. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So, Out of all the things. Yeah, I won't go further into that. <laughs> <laughs> My wife had it done once, and she was describing it to me. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pass. Some lady's looking at the tube and telling you what's going on in there. Like, right. what? Some lady's like looking right. at your shit. Right. It started as early as 1500 B.C., Ebers Pap Papyrus, uh, an ancient Egyptian medical document, described the many benefits <laughs> of colon cleansing. In ancient times, the practice of cleansing the colon was administered in a river by using a hollow reed to induce water to flow into the rectum. You don't want to drink downstream of that. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's no need to do this. What you want to do is make sure that things are going through in the right direction yeah. regularly, and it cleans itself. That's how it's supposed to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Another big one, I hear all these people that talk about detox, detoxification, mm. and sell all these products. The body has many natural methods of purifying itself and getting rid of things it doesn't want. One yeah. is through sweating. Uh, one is through breathing. One is through urination. One is through colonic elimination. Uh, the liver has an incredible capacity to detoxify. It can take, you know, you put something into your body, the liver within seconds of seeing a compound that has never seen before can begin making a specific enzyme to take that apart and get rid of it. Wow. And you can amputate half of the liver, and it can regenerate within 36 hours. What? Yes. Liver's amazing. 36 yeah, hours? Yeah, yeah, it's So I thought when you gave someone like half your liver, if there was like a liver transplant issue, that it took a long time. I didn't no, know liver can regenerate hours. really quickly. And that's there's insane. A, and there's a natural product that you can take that most doctors don't learn about called milk thistle. You've yeah. probably heard of that. That revs up liver metabolism. So mm. you know, these are all simple ways to increase. But the first rule of detoxification, I'm sure you can guess, you stop putting toxic things in. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> Cut it off at the pass. And let it let the body get you know purify itself. Yeah. Well, what do you do um, when someone's a cigarette smoker? 
you tell them to set a date to quit. Set a date. That's the most important thing because each attempt to quit, it doesn't matter if you succeed. It's making the attempt to quit goes into a reservoir of motivation that one day will be full enough that it's easy. Mm. And this, by the way, happens, really? with, happens with heroin addicts, happens with cigarette addicts. I've seen many people, lifelong cigarette addicts, struggled, gave it up, came back. One day they wake up and they look at stained fingers or a dirty ashtray and they don't want to do it anymore. And it's easy. There's no struggle. Same thing with heroin addicts. So it has to do with motivation. You can't put that into another person. And all you can do is arrange circumstances that maybe it'll happen. So the most important thing is to tell people to set a date to quit. And it doesn't matter if they how long they stick. But with you're it. saying there's there's actually some strength to be gained from failed attempts. Yes, it's making the attempt that you get credit for. Really? Yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So the more, like, say if you're a drunk and you keep falling off the wagon, if you just keep making these attempts. Yes. No kidding. Really. So there's something ramps up in your mind that, yeah. that makes it more feasible for you to quit. Oh yes, and when it when it happens, there's no struggle. It's mm. not a, not it's not an issue. It's just you don't want to do it anymore. Now, what do you do when uh, people come to you and they're on antidepressants? Well, I have a book called Spontaneous Happiness, which is about emotional wellness. There's a lot there about antidepressants. First of all, they don't work so well. You know, that's very hard. Sometimes to, they work. Sometimes they it's don't. It's hard to distinguish them from people. placebos. Right. You know, the popular ones, the SSRIs. Yeah. And now, because they don't work so well, you know what doctors do? They add one. They add an antipsychotic drug. Yeah. We, horrifying. These are like for major mental illness. They're not things you just add on to make the antidepressant work better. We've talked about that one ad nauseum on this podcast. Uh, because it turned out to be the most prescribed drug in America. Un that, I can't believe that. That's just astounding. Well, the, the word is that 25% of women between uh, 40 and 50 are on antidepressants and 10% of adults in the, in the country. All right. Now, here's another thing. That's a crazy number. Well, first of all, the, the pharmaceutical companies have done a great job of convincing people that ordinary states of sadness are problems of brain biochemistry that need yes. to be treated with a drug. We're not yes. supposed to be happy all the time. Right. Secondly, there's a big problem with a lot of the medications that we use, and antidepressants are a good example. Most of the medications we use are counteractive. You know, they oppose some process in the body. Right. So when you do that, the body pushes back against it. That's called homeostasis. You know, an easy example you can relate to is if you have a stuffed up nose, you spray a drug in it that decongests you. Miraculous, right? You can breathe. And depending on which drug you use, two hours, four hours at last, but when it wears off, you have rebound congestion. That's worse. If you use another dose of the drug then, very easy to slide into- How dare you, Jamie? <laughs> very easy to slide into a state of dependence on it. Mm. Same thing happens with many of these drugs. Antidepressants, they raise serotonin levels at neurojunction, neural junction. So what is the body going to do if you force an increase in serotonin? It's going to make less serotonin mm. and drop serotonin receptors. So if you stay on one of these for any length of time, when you get off it, you're going to be in worse shape than you were to begin with. And mm. this is now has a medical name. It's called tardive dysphoria, meaning lingering bad mood due to the drug. <laughs> so the drug actually prolongs or intensifies the depression. You know, maybe okay for very short-term use of very severe depression, but these are not things you want to go on and stay on for lengths of time. What's fascinating to me is when I talk to people that are on them that want to talk to you like they're on some cancer medication <laughs> or they're on, you know, something that cures 
polio. Yeah. Like they, they make it seem like you're insensitive to the possibility that there's other solutions. Right. And there are many other solutions. We have really good evidence for the antidepressant effect of physical activity. Yes. Both to prevent and treat. Yeah. Uh, we have very good evidence for supplemental fish oil for omega-3 fatty mm -hmm. acids to prevent and CBD treat. CBDs, well. All yeah. that. And the microbiome looks like it's involved in our mental states as well. So, you know, there's so many different ways of it. Yeah, CBD for sure. So, again, go, gets back to inflammation. It, and it gets back to in, an integrative approach and not just relying on a single thing like a pharmaceutical treatment. Yeah, I've talked to intelligent people that are on SSRIs in one form or another. And even ones that have struggled were on one for a while and then it stopped working and then they tried another one and they're combining yeah. ones. And they're on this weird sort of... Uh, chemical roller coaster and they reject any possible notion that there's other alternatives especially when you bring up the exercise one right i bring up the exercise one they go oh this fucking meathead this exercise <laughs> we just stop and i'm like i'm telling you dude. um we did this thing with my friends called sober october and what we did is uh we, we no alcohol no anything for the month of october but also we did this fitness challenge and we got real carried away, and we're all competing against each other with this heart rate app. So we're working out three hours, four hours a day. It was crazy. Huh. But what was interesting about it to me was not just that your body sort of adapts when you force it to work out that many right. hours, but that your mood is phenomenal. Yeah. I felt so good. Yeah. And I was telling everybody, if you could take what I – like, I don't feel that good right now. Like, I mean, I feel great, but I don't feel as good as I did during October because I was working out four hours a day. Right. It was – if you could get that in pill form, you would take it every day if there was no side effects because it literally r removed anxiety, all the internal chatter, all the negative chatter. It was gone. Everything seemed amazing. True. And there are side effects of physical activity are great. You yes. know, it revs up immune function, improves digestion, improves yeah. sleep, all that. You mentioned anxiety. The the by far and away the most effective treatment I found for anxiety is simple a simple breathing technique. Mm. You know, regulating the breath. I've seen this work for the most extreme forms of panic disorder. And the drugs that we use for anxiety are the worst. The benzodiazepines, mm. highly addictive, mess with your mind. Yeah, I have a good friend who has a, an issue with anxiety medication, and he takes it all the time. And when he doesn't take it. Apparently, it has that rebound Rebound, effect. exactly, yes, right. He gets horribly anxious. Well, these are handed out like candy, and nobody warns people how addictive they are. It's a worse addiction than an opiate addiction. Xanax? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did not know that. Harder to get off of than opioids. Wow. Now, how do you feel about um, psychedelic interventions when it comes to um, addictions? Like, it seems that we're, I, we're hearing more and more yeah. about that. I know you have a background in that as well. Well, we're especially hearing about Iboga and mm -hmm. Ibogaine. This yeah. is the African uh, psychedelic. Yeah. And there are clinics and people using this that claim great success. I don't have firsthand experience. I only know what I've heard and what I've talked to people. Me too. Uh, but sounds good. And I think that most of the psychedelics are so non-toxic. Uh, so safe and in the right hands, I think there's m many possibilities for you know good outcomes. Yeah, they've also had some pretty good results with cigarette cessation, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, with uh, not just iboga, but even with psilocybin. Yep. Apparently, um, they had uh, they did a study where they show the difference between someone taking psilocybin to try to quit s smoking cigarettes and some really large number of people. I think it was in the neighborhood of eighty percent quit. 
and then over the course of X amount of years, they were still at 60%. Uh So only 20% of those people would come back. That's great. But um, with other methods, the the, the number was much smaller, somewhere in the range of 20 or 15% after six years. A lot of them just went back to it. What do you make of the microdosing phenomenon? I mean, this is pretty astounding to see this happening. Bunch of pussies who scared to jump all the way in. (laughs) Just get it all into one big scary dose, man. Why do you want to medicate every day? That's kind of how I feel. Um, No, I'm just joking around. Uh, I think um, I, I know people who have experienced some pretty severe benefits of it especially people that weren't doing so good health wise yeah and you know we're just really kind of feeling down and depressed and yeah. now all of a sudden their outlook radically changed particularly psilocybin microdosing i know a lot of people yep. who are doing that yeah same i have a lot of hope that oregon becomes the first state to sounds le- like it's close yeah to legalize psilocybin that'd, that'd be a big one it would be gigantic and i think uh once we realize that no one's dying and a lot of people are getting helped and a lot of uh, people that are terminal yeah. are having some a really yeah. amazing alleviation of anxiety yeah. and uh, an understanding that it, it's going to be okay. And just, uh, I think, between uh, friends and just the, the, just the, the camaraderie, it sort of when you have these group experiences together, uh-huh. like there's some incredible benefits to that in terms of like reinforcing community and yeah, yeah. civilization, the way we feel about each other. Now, aside from the psychological and emotional benefits, I think you would be fascinated by some of the things that I've observed and written about of real physical benefits of psychedelics. And yeah. I'll just tell you a couple. Please. Uh, I, when I was in my late 20s, I did a lot of experiments. This was in the 70s with uh, LSD, mostly with LSD. Um, I had a lifelong allergy to cats. If a cat got near me, my eyes would itch. Uh, my nose would run. If a cat licked me, I'd get highs where it licked me. So I always, you know, avoided them and didn't let them touch me. So I took LSD with a group of friends on a spring day. I was living in Virginia. Fabulous. You know, I was outside running around having a lot of fun. And in the middle of this, a cat jumped into my lap. And I had a moment of, like, trying to defend myself. And then I thought, this is silly, you know. And I relaxed, played with the cat, had no allergic reaction, and never did ever after. What? Instant disappearance of an allergy that had been there all my life. What would be the physiological mechanism for something like that? Well, clearly that's a very profound mind-body interaction. Now, we know that allergies are influenced by that because you can show – a person allergic to roses, a plastic rose, and they'll have an allergy. So, that's, ah. so there's a learned component to allergy that can be unlearned, but I have did it not instant. Know that. Yeah, interesting. Now, all right, this is even more dramatic. Maybe a year later, same thing. It was LSD in the spring. I had also grown up with very fair skin and was told I couldn't get tan. And we used to go down to the Jersey Shore. I can't remember. I remember innumerable times, you know, gets getting second degree burn, sheets of skin peeling off, noxema at night. You know, we didn't have sunscreen in those days. Right. So uh, I just accepted that's how I was. You know, I can't get tan. So again, high on LSD, lying out naked in my great woods in my uh, home in Virginia, and uh, the sun was up there, and I thought. This is ridiculous. You know, I should not be afraid of the sun. The next day I got tan and I have ever since. What? Now that's a little more – I'm not quite sure of the mechanism there, but it's pretty How amazing. How long were you outside for though? Because if you're I outside was, long no, enough, no, you're going to get burnt. I was out in good time. You know, like I would have normally have – yeah, at least. I would have had you know, my usual reaction. But the, my skin got tan. It never had in my life. So what are you suggesting happened? 
Again, you know, there must be a way in which the nervous system influences melanocytes, which are the, you know, the cell, the pigment cells in the body that can either extend their, uh, you know, projections with pigment granules. So the nervous system controls that and the mind connects the nervous system. But what about someone who's like ridiculously fair? Like what about someone who lives in Scotland or Well, some see, shit? what I would do is uh, in, when Dr. Weil's psychedelic clinic opens, I would have like, When's you know, that going to open? Well, we'll see. But there'll be an allergy program, right? You go uh -huh. in on the first day uh, you take a full dose of something and you're exposed to the allergen and you know magic happens and then you come in for 10 sessions with a decreasing dose and at some point you're not getting you're just getting a placebo and you don't know when that is and people are trained to lose their allergies I think you do the same thing with uh, sun tanning maybe not with people from Scotland because they've got fewer pigment cells yes. but, I would, but I wouldn't rule it out I'll tell you one more okay uh, also from this period I told you I was playing with yoga, there was one posture I couldn't do. Uh, the plow where you lie on your back mm -hmm. and try to touch your toes behind your head. Yeah. I got to where I could get my toes to a foot from the floor and I had excruciating pain in my neck. Uh, and I, as much as I tried that, I made no progress. So I was on the verge of giving up. I thought I was too old. I was 28. So uh, again, on a, in an LSD state, uh, my body was feeling totally elastic. I thought, oh, I had to try that. So I'm lowering my feet. I thought I had a foot to go and they touched the ground. I couldn't believe it. I raised it, lowered it. Oh, wow. Fantastic. The next day I tried to do it. I got within a foot of the ground and had excruciating pain in my neck. But now I knew it was possible. Before that, I didn't know it was possible. So knowing it was possible, I was motivated to keep at it. And in a few weeks, I was able to do it. If I had not had that experience, I would have given up. So I think this is the magic of these things. They can show you possibilities. They don't necessarily teach you how to, how to maintain them, but they can show you that things are possible you'd never believe. Well, it didn't even seem like it was just showing you a possibility. It was actually showing you capability. Like yeah. you were capable of moving in yeah. a way that you didn't think you were exactly. moving before. Right. And it was because of your own tension and worry. Yeah, probably learned patterns of tension that had built up all my life. And maybe some, because of the conscious or the uh, psychedelic state, rather, there's some alleviation of tension. Or my mind was out of the way. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you do, you definitely sense that with marijuana, particularly edible marijuana. You can really get good stretching in with edible marijuana. Yep. It's almost like you, I mean, I, I hate to use certain terms to just like trigger people's bullshit alarms, but there's a... You you can you can feel more of the muscle. You can yeah, feel yeah, yeah. more of what what it's doing. <laughs> right. Whereas, uh, you know, I'm I've been involved in martial arts and athletics most yeah, of my life, yeah. so I I'm, I have a good awareness of yeah. my body. But it's way better when I yeah. eat metal ed edible marijuana. Yeah. Like I feel, I understand. Like I can practice moves better. Like uh -huh. certain like kicking techniques. Yeah. I, I'm better. If I'm more in tune with how everything's working together, whereas uh, sometimes I can do it if I'm sober, but it's um, I'm almost like there's a prophylactic between me mm -hmm. and my body. Yeah. There's a numbness yeah, yeah, yeah. to it that gets removed by edible marijuana. One other I'm fascinated by, this was with MDMA. Uh, I was I lived in a ranch outside of Tucson, and I had pathways that had, uh, you know, sort of large gravel, and I could not walk on that barefoot. It really hurt my feet, and if you know if I stood on them, you, you could see dents in mm -hmm. my feet. On MDMA, I was able to like dance on those stones, no pain. But the interesting things there were no marks on my feet. So the pain is easy to figure out how that happens. But right. what's happening that you know you don't get a dent? I mean, it seems to me. 
if your mind is out of the way, maybe little muscles there can are free to press back with just the amount of force to neutralize the pressure. Hmm. It's like if your mind is not interfering, I think the body has amazing capabilities. Well, I definitely think you can mind fuck yourself, right? Yeah. And you can definitely think, ah, oh, God, this is – you can start yeah, yeah. thinking it's worse than it is. Yeah. And if you can relax, a lot, oftentimes there's many situations where you relax and things aren't nearly as bad as you are making them out yeah. to be. So that could be yeah, yeah. some – I'm with you on everything except the tanning. <laughs> the tanning I, it one, happened. I'm like, it ex- I experienced it. That's one of those things, like Bigfoot. Like when you should just keep it to yourself. Like if, if you see Bigfoot, you're supposed to just go. I'm not going to explain. I'm this. not going to keep that to myself because yeah. I want. You know, no, when, when I when people tell me things that I have no experience of, mm-hmm. I'm always willing to entertain the possibility. But then I got to experience it for myself. I'm willing to entertain it, dependent upon who I'm talking to. Right? Because there's some. Kooky yeah, people yeah. out there, and you will entertain possibility yeah. after possibility. <laughs> yes, until you die and you realize I you got were a, one big Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some people are just crazy. You know, we have to accept that. True. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. But I I I am absolutely aware that there's some component. There's something about the mind and the way the mind interacts with matter and with life yep. that has a profound effect on your body. And it would be really nice if we were all better at controlling that. One of the uh, insights that I've had in psychedelic states is that everything is conscious, that consciousness permeates everything, that, you know, I, I, I feel whatever in me that my consciousness is also in rocks and in plants and in animals, mm. that there's some universal something out there. And it's, there are two, you know, really different ways of looking at reality. One is the materialist one, which is that consciousness is a product of brain biochemistry and electricity, and that is dominant in science today. The other is that the brain is a receiving apparatus for consciousness, and that consciousness is primary, uh, maybe existed before matter, maybe organized matter into forms that are more and more able to experience themselves. I don't know. I don't think there's a way to prove one or the other. It's just that, for me, the consciousness as a primary one is more fun. And makes life more interesting. I'm sure you're uh, familiar with Rupert Sheldrick. Oh, yeah, he's a good yeah. friend. Very, very interesting guy. He has a, an idea that everything has memory, right? right? He yeah. believes that that this would be like the reason, I guess, why some people would not want to live in a haunted house, uh-huh. right? They would think that if uh-huh. someone was murdered in a house, that it would retain some memory of these atrocities and that you would somehow or another interact with that if you were in that house. So, like, spaces. Like, mm-hmm. my dad is not a very, um, he's not a woo-woo kind of guy. Yeah. But he went to Gettysburg. Uh-huh. And he was telling me that when he was at Gettysburg that it just, he felt profound sadness. Uh-huh. He's like, it just seems like it's just in the ground, like the whole area. He goes, I don't know how to describe it, but I wanted to huh. get the fuck out of there. Huh. Like, just, just being around this area huh. where this battle had taken place huh. and so many people had died. He said, you could feel it. Ha. Huh. I don't know if I buy it. I mean, but he's I, not the kind of guy that would. No, right. But that's an example where you somebody tells you something like that. That's yeah. his experience. Right. I'm willing to entertain it. I have to experience it myself. Yeah. But it also could be, you know, like he um, he got lucky and didn't get drafted during Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And that's probably in his head that if he did get drafted, he might have died over there. And for what reason? He wouldn't have experienced yeah. this life. He wouldn't yeah. have. You know, why, what is the, and then thinking about these young men that died in the same fashion 
for some war that didn't make any sense. Like, why the fuck are they even fighting it? Like, who, who's, yeah. why, why is this yeah. a, and then having all these people die together in this one horrible battle in this one place. And he, you know, it could yeah. have been, he was playing a game on his mind, but. Now, Joe, I want to talk to you about your language. Why the fuck do you swear so much? I don't know. Have you read anything about the science of swearing? No. Do you know that there is a science of swearing? A science? Yes, it's pretty interesting stuff. Oh. So the part of your brain that produces swear words is not the part of the brain that manages ordinary language. Oh. Really interesting. Uh, you know, we have two language centers in our left frontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Uh, People that have strokes that damage them often lose language completely, but they can still swear. So swearing is coming from somewhere else. Uh, It may be coming from the right hemisphere, Mm. but it's also coming from deeper centers in the brain that connect to the limbic system and the amygdala, and that connects to the involuntary nervous system. So here's a couple interesting facts. Uh, Swearing is associated with sweating, increased sweating. Hmm. So you should be dripping with sweat. Uh, I haven't sweared that much. I'm a comedian. I'm I'm sure it's Secondly, also interesting, swearing uh, increases pain tolerance. And there's an interesting experiment. You know, the standard way they do pain tolerance, they have people stick their hand in a bucket of ice and water, Mm -hmm. and you see how long they can keep it there. The people who say, fuck, shit, can keep it there much longer than people who are not allowed to swear. What about noises? What if they just go, ah. No, it was swearing specifically. Mm, so they've tried noises and swearing? Yeah, and swearing so it may one. be, you know, when you, uh, if you're hammering a nail and hit your thumb, yeah. you use one of those words, that's a good strategy. That's interesting because I almost always do that. If I hurt mm-hmm. something, especially a finger, mm-hmm. you know, like I slammed a yeah, finger yeah. in a car door the other day and I went, motherfucker. <laughs> so that's what that is? But that's, yeah, and it's interesting. Mm. It's coming, there's a different part of the brain that, mm. that manages that. It has different emotional content. Yeah, it flavors language. Yes. I, I like them. I'm a big fan of the swears. I'll leave you some papers about the science of swearing. It's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, what, if, what, would, what would happen if they were no longer taboo? Would the same they'd lose areas? Their pow- I think they'd lose their power. Yeah. That, yeah, right. The same areas of the brain wouldn't. No. Like, I remember there was an episode of, I don't remember what television show, but it was uh, on CBS. Yeah. And uh, they had a line at the end of the show and essentially they were saying, shit happens. <laughs> and it was a big deal. I'll bet. It was a big deal that they wanted to be able to say, shit happens. Uh-huh. And apparently they pulled this off and they got it through <laughs> and it was like a 10 p.m. show, so it was okay. And it was 11 o'clock by the time they said shit. And uh, I remember thinking like, wow, what a strange sort of like, how many people were involved in this sort of dance? Like how many lawyers and executives uh-huh. and who, like it's very strange. Very strange. That this one word, would tr- everybody knows the word. Right. It's not even that So it's offensive. kind of a, a, you know, a, a kind of game we all yes, play, right? <laughs> yes. So, but you're saying this game is facilitated by one specific part of the brain and is so that because like I don't, swear I don't know. words are taboo words they're right? taboo words and often associated with things that we find offensive mm-hmm. uh, or with bodily acts that freak people out yeah so but so there's both a there's a psychological social aspect to it but there's also a neurological aspect to it now when the words like some some words for some people like I remember when I was a kid uh, I lived in Florida for a little bit and and uh, I said hell once, and uh, in Florida in the 1970s, hell was a swear. <laughs> like, 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I came from New Jersey, and then I was in San Francisco, and then also I was in Florida, and I said, hell. And they're like, don't swear like that in this class. I was like, swear? What the fuck are you people talking about? Like, it didn't make any sense to me. And then I was like, you guys have different swears. Yeah. Now, if you had a word that was not taboo to you, mm-hmm. would it be, would that same area of your brain be. I don't know. This is it, it, there has not been a lot of research. It hasn't mm. been taken seriously, but that's all interesting questions that should yeah, be studied. Because it, some, I mean, if you're a really super conservative person, there's right. a lot of words that are off the table. Yeah, but if you are a far more, you know, just loose with your language, you could shit this and yeah. this. God damn it! You know that would be nothing. Like right. God damn it would be just like right. ah shucks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But to someone, goddamn, it would be like a really bad, big deal. Bad, yeah. yeah, really big deal. <laughs> so, like, what it would be different parts of the brain would be activated mm-hmm. by that versus if you said it, it would be not that big a deal. But if someone was like super conservative and they probably said probably even yeah more yeah wow yeah interesting. What do you, do you think that that is a universal thing? I mean, it obviously seems to be it seems wise, to be universal. Right? Seems to be universal. Yeah. Another finding that I came across is that people who learn a second language. That swearing in the second language does not have the same emotional impact that your first language does. Oh, that makes sense. That's yeah. why they're so fun when you learn yeah. Spanish swears. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you get a free ride. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And you can do them on television too. <laughs> right? You can yeah. say a lot of Spanish swears right. on English-speaking TV uh-huh. and everybody just pleads ignorance. <laughs> do you? So in, does every language have... Yes. They all have swears. Every language has taboo words, swear words. Wow. Yeah, it's universal. That is really interesting. Asian languages, European languages, all of them, huh? Wow. Huh. So that that would, at least in my brain, seem to indicate that there's like some use for that. Yes. Well, probably many uses. One is this thing of uh, modulating pain. One is a, a social bonding, mm. you know, forming some community. Yeah, that's how I kind of use it. Yeah, I think, right. I think when I swear in front of people, I'm chesting them out. Yeah. Like, you freaking out if I say fuck? Because if you are, I can't talk to you. <laughs> right. Like, you're too much work. Right. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I you, know exactly what you If you're, you're talking doing. to someone in every other word, like, well, I w- really wish you wouldn't use that language. Well, okay. You're, there's so much work to do here. I can't. I know exactly. Can't hold your hand. Saying. Dance through this garden. Right. Yeah, that it's um it's to me also like I hang around with a lot of people that swear a lot because mm-hmm. I hang around with professional comedians and right. fighters and there's a lot of uh, swashbuckling freewheeling type of individuals involved in those pursuits and. Now there seems that there's some study suggesting that swearing is becoming more frequent in our society Do you think and because more of the public. Internet? I don't know. It's a trend. I'm not sure anybody knows why. But yeah. I mean, nobody would have been you know, on the air like you are 20 years ago. That's true. Yeah. Well, that is specifically because of the internet, because of a lack right. of exactly. regulation. Yeah. 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 But even that, it's like, it's it's resisted in a lot of ways. Like, people are trying to figure out how to modulate this and how to handle it. And They'll never handle it. No. Nah, it seems <laughs> like the genie's out of the bottle, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately you find what you enjoy and the best way to find what you, what you enjoy is people actually doing what they want to do and then you figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be what's happening in the world of the internet and podcasting uh-huh. and stuff like that. Uh-huh. It's also the, the access, 
right? Like a person like you, you could just put together a podcast, and uh, if people find it interesting, if it resonates, you could get a uh, hundred thousand downloads mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Like a hundred thousand. If you have a radio show, hundred thousand people listening. That's a lot of damn people. Yeah. Like, they'd be excited. Yeah. They're like, "Hey, Andrew, we got the uh, monthlies in, and you're doing great. <laughs> you got a hundred thousand people a day." They'd be like, "Holy shit, this is a <laughs> successful business." But you could be doing that just from your office, just uh-huh. put together with a laptop and a microphone and no distribution whatsoever in terms yeah. of like no string of executives and gigantic corporation behind you. You don't have all, all and that. And nobody telling you what you can yes. say and can't say. Yeah. Well, that's one thing you get out of today that you never got out of before. And, you know, this is I've been involved in show business for many years, but only this kind of stuff for nine mm-hmm. from doing this podcast. And what I've seen with this is like what's unusual, I think what resonates with people is that there isn't anybody else. There's no group of people that's saying, Andrew, uh, can you stop saying this? Or let's let's concentrate mm-hmm. on that. And the the polls are showing that people like this and, you know, you have breaks in between where the commercials are playing. They come to you with notes and they tell you things. <laughs> All that stuff just seems yeah. to somehow or another ruin this natural interaction that we have yeah. with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for a guy like you, the internet is, I would think that with some of your more controversial ideas, like this is the way you could really air them out in long form. Because if you, like a lot of doctors, they don't want to open their mind to anything outside of what they're, what I've, they're practicing. I've noticed. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be rough for you, right? But I've never censored what I say. I've always put it all out there. Good for you. Yeah. I've Good. done that all my life. But do you, don't you find that it's more, uh, not, not just accepted, but it, people are more interested in it now because of the internet? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I've heard about you for many, many years, but it's sort of ramped up over yeah. the last you know, decade or so. Right. <laughs> yeah, because of the internet. Right. right. Because people have this- But you know, I've been around, it's, it's fu- funny when I look at this stuff like, you know, all the stuff about pot and it's like mm-hmm. placebos. I was saying this stuff in the 1970s. You know, my yeah. first book, The Natural Mind, was published in 1972. It argued that everybody has an innate drive to alter their consciousness. Yeah. And that, you know, drugs are one way of doing it. Uh, I did the first human experiments with pot that were ever done with uh, under double-blind conditions. What experiments did you do? I gave marijuana to people in a laboratory in 1968. And what did you test them for? Well, we were just seeing people bet me you couldn't do it. Nobody had ever done this. You know, the, it, all this marijuana was becoming such a big thing and nobody – there were n- no experiments. Like what, what, what kind of experience? I took like I mean, the most basic stuff. I just wanted to show that you could give it to human subjects in a lab and get away with it because people thought you oh. couldn't. You know, you mean in terms of the FTC? In terms of law, lawsuits, everything. Okay. You know, one of the things I wanted to give it to people that never had it before to speak, so there'd be no expectations. Everyone said, this is terrible. You know, they're going to turn into heroin addicts from giving them mm. stuff like that. Anyway, I just wanted to see basic stuff like, does it dilate the pupils of the eyes? Because cops were busting people. You know, they'd say their eyes are dilated, yeah. must be high on marijuana, and they'd search. But marijuana doesn't, we, I, we showed, doesn't dilate the pupils of the eyes. I took ch- tested blood sugar because people said the reason people get hungry is because blood sugar drops has no effect on blood sugar. Uh, we showed that, uh, you know, people who had never had marijuana before in a lab, you could show slight 
decreases in performance in motor function and cognitive function. But people who were regular users of it, you couldn't show that, that they mm. had adapted to it. Yeah, my take on that is that I think the people that are not regular users are freaking out. Yeah. And because they're, they're nervous. It's novel and, sensations yeah. and they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, and they just don't, they don't know how to relax. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big one to me with, uh, with physical movement because yeah. they, they want to you know, test drivers and all sorts yeah, of other yeah. things for marijuana. I'm like, this is not alcohol. You're talking no. about a completely different thing. If I had a choice of being a passenger with these drivers, I'll tell you which one I would take. A uh, person who had never used marijuana and had just smoked. Uh, a person who was a user of marijuana and had just smoked but had never driven high. A person who was a user, regular user of marijuana and had practiced driving high. And a person with any amount of alcohol in their system. I take the third as the best bet. Yes, the third's the best right. bet. Yeah, that guy's a wizard, I bet. Right. That guy drives high every day. Yeah, so he's used to it. <laughs> not going to show any effect on his performance. Yeah, it's the experience is a novel experience. And right. that the if you're accustomed to it, then it's just like, here we go. This is my normal world. And for many people, you have to learn to get high. You have mm -hmm. to learn to associate the subtle physical cues with the altered state. That's a common thing. People feel nothing the first time they try it. Yeah, you do hear that, right? But I don't think they know what the fuck they're talking about. Like, <laughs> bro, you're high as fuck. Now, <laughs> when you uh, when you did these experiments, what did you have to clear these with the FDA? Oh, you, would, did you, you would not believe. What did you have to do? I had to get permission from the FDA, which said that, that I couldn't do it unless I first got permission from – it was the old Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was the Treasury guys. Oh. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics said, we'll give you permission once the FDA gives you permission. So they oh, played great. that off. Then I had to get permission from the state of Massachusetts, from two agencies there. And there were two universities involved, Harvard University and Boston University. So coordinating all this stuff was unbelievable. And then once the, all the approvals came in, I had to get the pot, and there was no legal source of it. So I, I, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics gave me confiscated pot that they had confiscated in uh -huh. some case in Texas. They brought it over. They had delayed us so long. I didn't even know if I had time to do the experiments because I was going to graduate. Anyway, they brought this stuff on a Friday afternoon. It was shit. I mean, it was brown, dry. It looked like it had been sitting in a warehouse for years. Right. So the first thing I did was roll up a joint and smoke it. No effect, whatever. I called the, the agent that I dealt with, and I said, this stuff is no good. And he said, how do you know? You haven't had time to run any experiments. And I said, I looked at it under the microscope, and there was no resin on it. So they grumbled, and they gave me other stuff, which was passable. So, uh, But, again, confiscated stuff. Yeah. Because we always used to hear when we were kids about government weed. The government weed was the good weed. Do you well, that remember was that? later. That was yeah. later when that when oh, okay. when research got going and the uh, U.S. the government started a pot farm in Mississippi to mm. provide pot for research, which was much better. And there was only a handful of people that were under these experiments, correct? It was so it, it, they made it so difficult to mm. conduct research as they have with psychedelics. No, that's slowly changing now. Yeah. Well, um, you know Rick Strassman? Sure. Yeah. When he was doing that book, uh, DMT, the yeah. spirit molecule, and he did all those tests with those people, that was really groundbreaking stuff because, yeah. you know, doing it at the University of New Mexico and doing right. it under clinical conditions, they were able to document the similarities between all these people's psychedelic yeah. experiences and do this with government approval, yeah. which I thought was really fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And the fact that they did it and the information's out and then there's been like very little movement in that direction. It's kind of just like, okay, now we know. 
But look, everybody's fine. It's a lot of benefit. Do do we want to act on this? Like you know, it takes decades. Right. It takes and, forever. And, and, and plus, what research was done all along, it was primarily to look for negative effects. Ah. You know, no yeah. nobody who wanted to look for positive effects got permission and funding. That's interesting. So you have to kind of frame the proposal in a way yeah. that like we're these kids are fucking themselves up. Yeah. And we're gonna prove it, sir. <laughs> so that's changing. But you know, the big stumbling block now. We got to get. Uh, cannabis out of that federal schedule yes. one. That's like causing a lot of problems. Yeah. There's been some noise about uh, decriminalizing, decriminalizing it federally, which is like step one, I guess. That's to, the big stumbling yeah. block. I'll give you one, one example. I'm uh, involved with a, uh, a group called Maui Wellness Group. I'm the chief science officer. Maui, and, Hawaii? Yeah. We got the first dispensary license and growing operation over there. Oh, nice. Very good. Is very it good legal outfit. in Hawaii? How does it for, work? For medical. Medical. Not, not for recreational. Like how sick you have to be. You know, it's okay. They're, they're you know, allowing <laughs> it. But there's, there's specified conditions. Hawaii is, not, is more uptight than a lot of other states. Right. But it's happening. But uh, our license is for Maui County, which includes Maui, Molokai, and Lanai. So people from Molokai and Lanai can come to Maui to buy product in our dispensary, but they can't take it back because the waters between the island are federal. What so if they it, throw it? <laughs> <laughs> Still has to cross the water. Oh, it's no but that's good. ridiculous. You know, that's the, the kind waters of, that's, are federal. That's, that's the kind of that's the kind of ridiculous situation. So better to be on Maui and not better go to, to be Lanai. Right. You got to go to Maui to get high. Yeah, that's great. What if you're really sick? Like, what if you have cancer or something like that? Well, and you live on Lanai. Yeah. Well, you got to violate the law. Yeah, we have to violate the law. But if you that. have it in Lanai, you're okay. So can you grow it? Uh, no, you can only grow it if you have a license, and the only license is for Maui. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we got to change this. California was really ridiculous when they were doing medical. Like, you could just basically go in there and go, like, I can't sleep. And they right. go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing. Like, I had friends that had, like, long, elaborate excuses they had planned out. Like, you know, I was, <laughs> I was in a car accident while six, and when I go to bed at night, I have these horrible dreams, and the only thing that helps me is marijuana, and I'm just trying to feed my family. And they would go, stop, stop stop yeah okay i'll write your script they just give it to you like there was no resistance like if you ah. my joke was that if you can't get a license for marijuana you should probably go to a hospital immediately because <laughs> you got a real problem they're like no man you need right. actual doctors right <laughs> i'll tell you a story this this is something that bothers me though i'm not i'm not a user of pot now i was heavily in my earlier life a friend of my doctor colleagues uh, in San Francisco sent me some samples of stuff that had come from a medical dispensary in San Francisco, and he wanted me to try them. So one of them was a, some concentrated oil. It came in a, a little syringe and it had a very elaborate, nicely printed brochure with it that described the use of this for pain. And it said you should start with an amount the size of half a grain of rice. Uh, take it orally. So what? Yeah, my friend said take it at bedtime. So this is a teeny amount, and actually, I probably took somewhat less because I was afraid of getting too high on it. Good so I took you. it at bedtime, went to sleep, woke up about an hour later in full blown delirium. I mean, visual <laughs> hallucinations <laughs> as strong as I've had on LSD. I couldn't get out of bed. I was, I, you know, I was immobile. Yeah. I had burning thirst. I couldn't get up to get a glass of water. I mm. had a friend staying in a guest house. I couldn't call for help. <laughs> I lay there, and it kept increasing. It kept, you know, over four hours, it got stronger and stronger. And I, when is it going to end? Mm. Anyway, it lasted twelve hours. Yeah, and uh, for about. 
24 hours after my equilibrium was really off. <laughs> and this stuff is being, I mean, you know, this is, and it said, it said the direction said, start with this amount and work up from there. That's hilarious. And there are people, I'm thinking there's people, you know, driving on the streets. This oh. stuff is out there. That scares me. Yeah, there's people that'll squirt that whole thing in their gullet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you know some. Yeah, I know a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, it's a the edible world is a weird world because of the the the, re, the response of the body is so much different than the smoking. It's a it different a, drug. Yeah, and a, a lot of people are fooled by the, you know the long length of time it takes. So mm -hmm. you know it's like lighting the firework and the fuse yeah. is down and you go back and try to light it again and yeah. I'm sure you've heard the recording of the police officers who stole the pot from the kids and then ate it and then called 911 on themselves. No. You never heard it? No. Oh, it's wonderful. Right, I won't play it again because we played it too many times in this podcast. Okay, I'll look it up. But these poor cops, they, they, they ate pot brownies and they're calling 911. They're like, I think, I think we're dying. Time's moving real slowly. I think we're dead. <laughs> it's so stupid. It's so stupid. You, it's, like, it's, it's good for kids to hear because you realize, like, oh, cops are just people. Oh, all right. Okay. It's just, it sounds like my brother. If my brother got high, you know, it's just crazy people that get high. But it, the, the effect of the edible uh, can be pretty, pretty fucking yeah. profound. And yeah. this area in particular, uh -huh. like Hollywood has some preposterous THC level edibles. I can imagine, yeah. I mean, they're, they're under different regulations now yeah. that it's legal statewide uh -huh. instead of just medical. But uh -huh. when it was medical only, you could get these insane huh. concoctions. Huh. Stars of Death. You ever heard of a Star of Death? <laughs> no, no. I have not heard. Gonna of hang star. out with Joey Diaz. <laughs> he hit you with a Star of Death. What is those stars? They're like twelve hundred milligrams. I think they range anywhere from like two hundred to three, four hundred. Yeah, each, each yeah. little star. So. E each yeah, little star is hundreds of milligrams, and Joey would eat like three or four of them. Eight. I don't yeah, know. he just would just throw them down. He's a he's got an insane tolerance. <laughs> yeah, he's just one well, of those you know, guys. Given all this stuff, however, I, I am delighted to see our society finally coming to better terms with yes, this plant. me too. Uh, cannabis, you know, the, the, the word cannabis is the same word as canvas. Mm -hmm. uh, all canvas sails and rope used to be made from hemp. Yeah. Uh, the, and the species name sativa means useful. It's the useful hemp. It's really useful. You know, this is one plant that ha provides an edible seed, an edible oil, a, a high-quality fiber, a medicine, and an intoxicant. That's a lot of ways for a plant to be useful. Uh, we have been very stupid in our relationship with that plant. Yeah. The uh, cannabis, it's, it's the equivalent of the dog in the plant world. Dogs mm. long ago made a decision to co-evolve with us. They threw their evolutionary lot in with humans. Cannabis did the same thing. You can't unravel the early botanical history of cannabis because as far back in history as you, we go, it's always associated with human settlements. Mm. So that plant wants nothing other than to be with us and to serve us. And we have been so stupid. We've let a billion-dollar industry in hemp textiles go to China. We've let a million-dollar industry in edible hemp products go to Canada. Uh, and we have ignored its potential for medicine. Well, I'm really hoping that things are going to change in terms they of will. our cultivation of hemp. Um, you know, I'm one of the owners of Onnit, and mm -hmm. we sell hemp protein. And one of the great, yeah, we used to get our hemp protein from Canada. Yep, we used to have to get it from Canada, right. we, and then sell it in America. We yep. couldn't grow it here. Stupid. Well, that's going to yeah. change. I'm so hopeful. It's going to change. It does change. It is. Um, it's fascinating, also, how well the propaganda worked against it and how long even in defiance of all the facts now i have to tell you when i did those pot experiments in 1968 
Uh, I predicted that pot was going to be legal in five years. No, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, all I thought, I thought it was just a matter of getting the truthful yeah. information out there. Well, it yeah. wasn't. You know, people believe what they want to believe and they don't believe what they don't want to believe and it's rude. It's totally irrational. Well, it's also an, a really excellent example of the contradictions in our society yep. and the, the, the difference between something that's accurate and something that's perceived. Yep. And we have this perception of marijuana. And, and sometimes that perception is based on experiences. Like you might meet some right. really lazy, fucked up people who yeah. smoke pot all the time. And you go, oh, this is what pot does to you. Also, it was the associations of pot. Because the, mm -hmm. in, back then, you know, in the 50s, 60s, it was associated with Mexican migrant workers, mm -hmm. with uh, black jazz musicians in the South, and then with radicals and hippies. So yeah. all scary people to mainstream, you know, middle-class white yeah. society. And of, of course, all accentuated by William Randolph Hearst and Harry right. Anslinger yep. and the Reefer Madness films. Yep. <clears throat> those are great. They're great. If anybody hasn't seen those, yeah. oh, they're, it's amazing how something that was terrifying to someone back then is so silly today. <laughs> when you watch True. Reefer Madness today, it's really funny. And at the same time, we're living with the two most dangerous drugs that are out there mm. with alcohol and tobacco. Well, how about fentanyl? Right, that sure. One, that one scares sure. the shit out of me. Sure. They just keep ramping that one up and yeah. making it more and more potent. Yeah. Just, the idea that opioids weren't killing people quick enough, that we needed to make some ridiculously potent versions of it. And apparently now there's, they're approving something that's even more powerful yeah, I than I fentanyl. That. Yeah. Like, what? Why would you do that? But you know, on a physiological level, opioids are not that bad for your body. The worst effect of being addicted to an opioid over time is chronic constipation. I mean, that's annoying, but that's not like cirrhosis of the liver, oh, degeneration really? of the nervous system. But overdoses. Overdoses, of course, that kills yeah. you by stopping your respiration. But mm. it, but there are many examples of people who have been addicted to opioids who've been able to get legal supplies and mm -hmm. use them sensibly. They're healthy. I've heard about that when, in terms of regular heroin use. Yep. That um, I had a friend who was a longshoreman, and this is like when I was a kid, he was explaining to me how this guy that he worked with would get a bag of heroin every day at lunch, mm -hmm. and he would shoot it in his car. <laughs> and he would just sit in his car during lunch hour, and then when the time was up, he'd go back to work. I was like, what? He's like, he would do that every day. I'm like, he's going to be dead in a week. No, no if, the, he knows, if he knows how to take care of himself. Apparently he right. did. Yeah. Apparently he would do it all the time. Right. And I guess find a new vein and, and figure out how to do it and, and not there's give a, himself there's gangrene. There's a famous historical example that's great. Uh, there was a man named William Halstead who was a surgeon at uh, Johns Hopkins University in the early 1900s. He invented uh, local anesthesia. Uh, and so, you know, great guy. He started using cocaine uh, and injected, self-injected cocaine and, and not a good thing. And his, you know, his behavior got really bad, every, not good. <laughs> so at some point, his, a group of his colleagues kidnapped him and put, took him on a yacht for, for several weeks. And he came back supposedly cured, had a long life as a very successful, productive surgeon. And only after his death was it revealed that what had happened on that trip was that they had gotten him off cocaine and onto intravenous morphine. Oh. And for the rest of his life, he was an intravenous morphine user, did not in any way interfere with his health or productivity. I would assume that if you're doing that every day, you're, you're going to run into issues with your veins. Well, yeah, presumably, you know, he knew how to rotate around and oh, do that. I wouldn't want to do that, but there it is. Oh. But the point is that, you know, right. it, it's a whole different game from alcohol and, and tobacco. 
Yeah, a whole a whole different game. But the also- problems it's the it's the social toxicity of it. It's mm. that it, that people are buying illegal, impure uh, materials. And, and overdosing and so forth. That's not the uh, the na- pharmacological nature of the drug. What's been disturbing to me as a person, as an observer, is watching people who get injured get hooked on it. Yeah. Like it, 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 particularly pills. Yeah. It seems that um, my my good friend Brendan, he had his nose broken, and uh, he got his nose fixed, and they put him on pills. And before he knew it, he was taking those pills every day for months and months and months. And his friends eventually uh, just took him out of his medicine cabinet, and it, they, they just made an intervention. So, you know, this is – I think the uh, the opioid crisis that we've got in this country is a fabulous opportunity for integrative medicine mm. because the realization is that you cannot manage chronic pain solely with use of opioids. Right. You know, there has to be individualized integrative treatment that use, uses different modalities. It could be everything from acupuncture, yoga, mind-body stuff, diet, mm-hmm. um, and that all has to be – the state of Oregon a couple of years ago passed an integrative pain management initiative saying that all pain, chronic pain management had to be integrative. And they listed the different modalities. They left out mind-body medicine, which to me is one of the most important. Yeah, the mind-body medicine, though, on any sort of a report. That seems like that's one like, okay, what kind of... But look, you know, I study... I'm with you. Yeah, I studied hypnosis uh, after I got out of my medical training, one of the most interesting courses I ever took. There's a well-known demonstration in uh, in the literature on hypnosis. You can take a person deeply hypnotized who's got good trance capacity, touch them with a finger that you represent to be a piece of hot metal, and they get a blister. And you can take the same person and touch them with a piece of hot metal and tell them it's cold, and they don't get a blister. Wait a minute. Wait yes. Well-known phenomenon. This is actually, have you ever seen this yes. in real life? Yes. So someone's taken a hot piece of metal and yes. convinced someone that they're not going to burn and yes. then they don't burn. Yes. That's, How long now do you that's close, by the way, to the suntan stuff. How long do you touch them with it for? You know, enough in an ordinary person that it would burn I call, them. I call bullshit. <laughs> I call bullshit But we'll that. try it. I just, let's try it. Okay. I'll put you under. <laughs> put you under and cook your hand. It's, it's like it's hot. If it's hot, it's going to fuck you up. No? Uh, well, I think if it's held there long enough, it will. Right. So, like, like, it's one of those things like the walking on coals thing. Absolutely, which you know, I've done a number of times. I'm sure. But if you, as long, with coal, you know this then, that coals yeah. are not a very good conductor of heat, which is why you don't cook on oh, coals. Right. That, you cook on that's metal. That's bullshit. Because, yes, I'll tell you why How that's so? bullshit. My experience was, I, the first time I tried it, uh, I was with a group of maybe 40 people. And it was a, the standard length of the firewalk was about 12 feet. Mm-hmm. It was a hot fire. It was mesquite. It was in my yard in Tucson, and and the guy came in. It was early in the days of firewalking, and he had this long four hour thing to get people ready. Uh, I was not in the right mental state when I did it, and my experience was it felt fucking hot. <laughs> and and when I got to the end of it, the it condensed down to like a number of points that really burned, and I mm-hmm. had blisters the next day. And most people that have walked that night. It looked like they were not in the right mental state, but I saw a few people who strolled across it that looked they were in some interesting altered state. So I wanted to try it again. Next time I did it, I shouldn't have done it. I was with a guy who was a real jerk who thought himself as a, you know, he's a self-styled guru, small group. It was a shorter, maybe eight-foot, cooler bed of coals, 
And I got significant burns from that. So like an annoying guru? So Yeah, like he really annoying. He had no idea, what he, stuff no idea and, what he was doing. And you're doing. like, this guy's a jerk off. And then you're getting annoyed, so you're out of your mindset. Right, and, and I then... burned my feet. So I said, I'm not going to do this again. <laughs> and then a friend of mine was doing some intensive workshop with Tony Robbins in Phoenix. Oh, Christ. And it was going to end. The last day, they yeah. were going to do try to set a record for the longest <laughs> firewalk done oh, in America. So he wanted me to come up. So I went up there. I thought, I'm, I'm going to watch. I'm not going to do it. So it was a 40-foot bed of coals. Ah! And it was really hot. And and he had like a troop of African drummers and people were dancing and drumming. It was like midnight. And he, people were getting in line to walk. And I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do it. But I found myself you know, going up there. And I was right there. And he taps me on the shoulder and says, you're ready. It felt like walking through crunchy croutons. There was no sensation of heat. I walked slowly. I kind of wiggled my feet in the things. And when I got to the end of it, I felt so high. It was like on acid. I had energy rushes through my body. I had nothing on my feet. So mm. on a much shorter, cooler walk, those coals conducted just fine. And, uh, you know, on this one, it's a mind-body thing. It's not about conductivity of the coals. It's Tony Robbins hitting you with some fugazi coals. Whatever. That's what that is. <laughs> it was hot. I mean, you could barely get at the edge of the thing, man. The heat was amazing. Do you know the Tony Robbins one, It's what's really interesting is uh, recently they've developed this issue with people trying to take selfies while they're walking across the coals <laughs> no, and burning their feet. It's become a, like, significant issue. Issue because it didn't happen until like within the last few I years. I never heard of that. Yeah, I, I think that would get you right out of the proper state. Yeah, there was a big uh, article about it. That's pretty a big funny. article about these people really <laughs> fucking their feet up. <laughs> you think it's funny? Well deserved. Yeah, I, so you really think that you have the ability to mitigate the amount of effect that yes. fire and coal, hot coal. Okay, have so on this your is. Skin. I don't have any proof of this. Is my intuition. I think okay. what happens if your mind is out of the way. Mm-hmm. You can take, you can absorb energy and let it flow through your body rather than getting blocked in the tissues mm. uh, where it causes damage. And I've seen this in, in other situations as well. And I think the problem is ordinarily our mind is in the way of that and, and does not let the body freely do that. Whew. And I See? think that applies to things like getting hit really hard, uh, heat. Getting hit really hard? How, what do you mean? Getting letting someone hit you as hard as they can with something that would cause damage and it doesn't. Oh, that's crazy. No, it's not. I've experienced yeah. it. Yeah, I, I'm sure you have. But are there, are there real scientific studies that show that? Nobody studied it. I'd love to study it. Nobody yeah. studied firewalking. You know, the usual scientific explanation it is that- It seems like we probably shouldn't talk about this until they do do studies because it seems so simple to do these studies. <laughs> And I'm not yeah. buying it for a second. I think if I hit somebody, they're gonna it's gonna fucking hurt. Right? If you get Deontay Wilder to punch you, I don't give a Look, fuck how much Tony Robbins talks you into common, the zone. Common experience. Uh drunks involved in car accidents don't get injured. Okay, but do you know why? Because they're totally relaxed. Yes, but that has nothing to do with some altered state of consciousness no. that's not allowing the injury to actually manifest Well, I think their mind itself. is out of the way and their body no. is totally relaxed. And to, so it but does. it's the tension of falling. You, you hurt yourself. Because you're defending yourself. Yes. You're, right. Right. You, your body is better off giving in to the well, impact. Well, I'm saying it's the same thing with the fire. But that's, it can't be. That's a different thing. Because you're not tense it's on a, the surface of your skin, which is causing the heat no, to burn your flesh. No, I think you're flesh. tense. 
plants in your nervous system, which is not let it, not able to absorb that thermal energy. Listen, bro, we're going to do some studies. All right. I'm going to burn you. <laughs> I'm going to burn you and anytime, I'm going to kick you. Anytime we'll try it. <laughs> I just don't buy it. It just. I think there's certainly you can mitigate the sensation of pain. I don't believe that you can do anything about the actual physiological mm-hmm. change to a hot piece of metal interacting with the tissue of your skin. I just think... The, like the steak does not know it's being cooked. It's just getting cooked. You're going to get cooked. You are meat. I just don't, I don't buy that. I'll show you some of these studies on hypnosis. There's doctors right now going, yes, you tell them, Joe Rogan. This is nonsense. Well, I believe hypnosis. I do believe that. But I, I, I absolutely believe you can achieve different states of mind where you feel things differently. Your, your concentration, right. your relaxation is in a different state. Your mindset is in a different state. I do not believe that you can change the physiological nature of your body's ability to absorb punishment, like a punch or uh, a kick. I, I do. And yeah. I, same thing of absorbing the sun. Let's set some studies up, sir. I agree. I'm, all for, it. I'm all for it. How do we got to make these tests? I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. We'll talk but after. But you've been doing this forever. How do yeah, you not yeah. know? Well, there should be like, you should have these studies already done. <laughs> You want to talk I got, about I got these other things. things to do. I know, but this is a significant I conversation agree. point because if it's proven, yep. this is really huge. Yeah. I mean, if you could really take a hot metal rod that right out of the fire and touch someone's skin, they're in the right state of mind. You don't burn them. That would be giant. Yes. Well, but, I, I, I'm telling you, you, I'll send you some some hip, literature on hypnosis that shows this kind of stuff. I'm sure someone wrote some shit down. <laughs> I'm sure. I want to see actual real studies. All I want, right. I want to see. And I want to, I mean, in this day and age, there's no reason to not videotape it as well. True. Yeah. True. Come on, dog. All right. It's on my Come list. On, I got a lot of stuff to do. This, this is a big one, though. I mean, because I this is something that woo-woo people, yep. right? Healers and yep. you know, a, lot of, a lot of people like to bring up. And when, when you press them on it, there's no evidence for it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, anecdotal evidence. Well, I've heard. Well, I work with a healer, and he tells me, like, okay. Okay. Do you okay. know what the literal meaning of anecdote is? No. It means unpublished in Greek. Ah. It does not mean stupid, not worth no. paying attention to. No, anecdotal evidence is often accurate. So, and, it, and it inspires you to do the experiments. So, okay, well, you go ahead and do that. All right. <laughs> You go ahead and I'll report, put that hot piece of metal on your skin. I will report back to you. Yeah, and I'm going to go, hmm, look at that, burn. Hmm. I'll report back to you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that anecdotal evidence is always inaccurate. It's most certainly accurate many times. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just as likelihood that it's not that it is. But anecdotal evidence is what, what gives you hypotheses to mm-hmm. test. Sure. But it's just not good enough to state as I agree. fact. Especially I agree. when something that doesn't make sense chemically yeah. and physiologically. Or it doesn't make sense... But I told you about my experience with sun and sun, yeah. suntan. That seems, doesn't make sense to seems you. Seems like you're tripping your balls off. and Yeah, and something happened in my body. <laughs> that would be interesting. If that there was would some be very sort of interesting. a change yeah. in your body's ability to produce melanin. Yeah. Or what is it? Melancholites? How do, how do you say it? Melanocytes. 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 So you're. Uh, and they're controlled. You know, they're, melanocytes are related to neurons and they're, they're influenced by nerve connections. So it seems to me perfectly possible that mind through the nervous system changes the behavior of melanocytes. Sort of like how your body can ramp up adrenaline or yeah. anxiety yeah. or any. They also can yeah. rip, ramp up melanocytes. Yeah. That doesn't seem like outside the realm of possibility. That right. seems like, obviously, some people- But when I first told it to you, you said it was outside the realm of possibility. Not outside, but sounds crazy. Okay. Definitely sounds crazy. All right. 
But I mean, it seems like that would be something also that would really warrant study. Absolutely. Especially those poor pasty ass motherfuckers out there on the beach <laughs> get, turning bright red. Like, no, man, you just got to think about it the right way. You imagine if you just told people that it was like a yeah. meditation and then, and then you just get a nice tan? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. It would be a good thing. Now, um, when it comes to, like, we were talking about autoimmune issues. Like, I, yes. have, I have vitiligo. You see what mm -hmm. that is? Like, I, I have do. spots I on right. my hands where I don't get any pigment. Yeah. How do I fix that? How do I fix that with my brain? Uh, you know, all I can tell you is that I would try to see if you can influence it through hypnosis or through guided imagery to see if you can change it in any way. I don't know. Hypnosis and guided imagery. Yeah. Huh? Hmm. They're two mind-body techniques. I think any – it's worth – trying i did read once that there was this i think it was a young man who had some awful one of those awful wart diseases and they, there was one called ichthyosis which is like the whole the skin tree, gets covered with yes. this callous tarred tissue yes and it went away through yes. hypnosis yes. yeah yeah over time i learned that case too they told him the like his arm that one arm was going to be right. cured and it just like completely that. eliminated yeah. all the warts on that one I arm. i remember that yeah and they couldn't figure out how or why and they couldn't recreate it so the wart stuff that's very well documented mm. you know and and wart cures there's so many different wart cures some of yeah. them are quite funny yeah uh you know you have to you have to uh uh, cut a particular plant under mm -hmm. the full moon and rub it and bury it, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. But the wart falls off the next morning. And when you compare that to the way we deal with warts medically, we burn them off, freeze them off, cut them off. And mm -hmm. most of the time when we do that, they grow back in multiple clusters. When, they get, when the mind gets rid of them through this method, they're gone. So we want to find out how to make that happen more of the time. Yeah, that's real, right? I mean, this is this yeah. is actual real documented yeah. science. Yeah, and yeah. that is what is so interesting to me about the placebo effect is that it is a real thing yeah. that your mind has this capability of healing itself in this very, very powerful way, but we don't exactly know how to turn it on or off. Right. And it can do the opposite, too. There's a phenomenon called voodoo death, where in uh, societies where there are witch doctor shamans, a malevolent witch doctor can curse a person, and the person goes home, lies in bed, stops eating, and over days or weeks, dies. Whoa. So what more could you ask of in the way of a uh, mind-body effect? Do you know about the curse of Lil B? No. You don't know? No. He doesn't know about Lil B? Lil B's a rapper. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he put a curse on, what was the basketball team? They were talking shit about him. So he put a curse on them, and they couldn't win a people. goddamn game. Huh? <laughs> it's happened a few times. Yeah, he's put a curse uh -huh. on a few different – he's like a real – how would you say? He's spiritual, very positive, mostly like real love-oriented guy, but occasionally he'll put a hex on a dude. Uh-huh. And uh, when he puts a hex on you, you got a real problem on your hands. Okay. And apparently it's been very effective. <laughs> and people freak out when Lil B hexes them. Little B puts that hex on you like, damn it. And then he releases the hex. Yeah, he's, uh -huh. lifted, he's lifted them. He lifts them. Uh-huh. And when he lifts them, everything goes back to normal. All right. This is weird, man. This is like a weird side. Because everyone's aware when Lil B puts a curse on you. Uh-huh. And when, when he does, people are like, oh, no, I can't <laughs> believe this. Like, like the idea of curses, like a, the, the, you know, a voodoo curse yeah, yeah. or a gypsy curse on you. That is a – Well, that's the negative side. In fact, yeah. it has a name. It's called the nocebo effect ah, from noxious right. rather yes. than pleasing. Yes. Yeah. That is um, – that's a documented thing as well, right? That people can believe that something is wrong with them, and then they start mind 
yeah. fucking themselves yeah. into this terrible state. Yeah. And then they start screwing things up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is hot started. Here it is. Kevin Durant says, I tried to listen to Lil B. My mind wouldn't let me do it. Can't believe this guy's relevant. And Lil B uh -oh. was like, oh, okay, bitch. Kevin Durant will never win the title <laughs> after he said Lil B is a whack rapper. The base god's curse. Hashtag the base god's curse on Durant. And then he always signs his, his tweets, Lil B. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. But it works. Uh -huh. It works. Kevin Durant is sitting home right now thinking of the millions that Lil well, B must have cost he's, him. Yeah, he's won now. It's, yeah, he's won now, but now. the kid could have bought a house <laughs> with all years. that money he lost. <laughs> oh, sure For those years that Lil B had him fucked over in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, I think uh, the opposite is true, too. So someone could put blessings on you. Like, there was a, a fighter that we had in here the other day, Deontay Wilder. He's the WBC heavyweight champion of the world. Mm -hmm. And he said that from the time he was a little boy, his grandmother had him convinced that he was like an anointed one, that he was special. Mm -hmm. And that she would always say that to his parents, like, you know, don't you hit him. Like, this one's special. Mm -hmm. You know, he's going to raise everybody up. And, and then he turned out to be like one of the great heavyweight champions ever in terms of like his record. He's 40 and 0 with 39 knockouts. I mean, he's a phenomenally uh -huh. successful fighter. And in his mind, he believes that he has some like magic yeah. property or that yeah. there's something to him He's a ridiculous knockout artist too. I mean, obviously there's a lot of physiological aspects to that I mean, He's a big long tall guy with crazy knockout power. You can't fake power you either have it or you don't But he's got it and he's got this weird confidence too And you got to wonder how much of him actually is operating under this idea that his grandmother was right about him having yeah. some magical properties And yeah. so he goes through life yeah. with this vision yeah, powerful. Yeah. How do you trick people into thinking that way? We need a whole nation full of uh, Deontay Wilders, a nation full of like super See, that's why, that's why doctors are afraid of the placebo effect because they think it's tricking people. It's mm. duping them. Yeah. And it's not. It's like it's, you know, when, when you present a treatment to a patient, your belief in the treatment as a, as a practitioner catalyzes the patient's belief. The, mm. the best way I can do that is if I give a patient something that I've tried myself and I know from my own experience that it works, and then I can present it in a way with my confidence, and that increases the patient's confidence and it increases the likelihood of a favorable outcome. Even controversial therapies? Yes, and even, you know... Like give when, me an example something well, you don't when, we, know. when you give a, a pharmaceutical drug to a patient, I think there's, there's the direct effect of the drug, and then there's a halo of belief effect. And, you know, an interesting phenomenon is that there's a famous uh, saying in medicine that you should use a new remedy as much as possible before it loses the power to heal. And this is a common experience that drugs work best near the time of their introduction. That's also the case with diets as well, right? Absolutely. And the longer they're around, what I think what happens is you know, people have faith in new things. Mm-hmm. So there's a big halo of placebo effect. Yes. And over time, that shrinks and it leaves the stuff on its own, which may not be very impressive. This is often the case when people take on a radical diet, like on opposite ends of the spectrum, whether it's a carnivore diet, yep. you wear that. A lot yep. of people swear it fixes yep. them of all these ails, or a vegan diet. Yep. Very similar yep. effects, obviously very different yep. diet. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the mind. The mind. The, the mind. mind is where it's at. How do we... How do we and the big problem in science and medicine is that we don't believe in the mind. Ah, you know, that's what I was saying earlier when you were talking about mind. It's body. not material. You know, yeah. it's not. Th this is the problem when you're talking about mind-body interactions or <coughs> wart cures, placebo effects. You're talking about a an 
non-material cause of a physical event. And that is not allowed in the materialistic paradigm that dominates science. When we observe (laughs) a change in a physical system, the dogma is the cause has to be physical. When you talk about a non-physical cause of a physical event, scientists tune out. Well, that's really unfortunate because we know so much about how attitude does shape the way your body reacts to things. Going back to the Sarno stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, that with back pain. <clears throat> it's 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 all that stuff. It's like you know that, that to me that uh, you can't separate the mind and body. They're two poles of the same thing. Well, if the placebo effect is real, and it it's is. documented. Yeah. yeah, it's documented. So obviously something is going on with the way you feel about things and think about things that it's having an actual physiological effect. There's something happening to your body because of the way you're thinking about it right. happening to your body. Now, one of the things that has made this you know, suddenly of interest in the medical world is that we now have these techniques like functional MRIs yeah. and PET scans where we can observe living brains. And you can show that the placebo response is associated with particular activity in certain brain centers. That has made it real for people that otherwise didn't believe in it. Mm. Yes, right? Like there's a medically documented There's something they reaction. can get a hook into. <clears throat> yeah, you can you can put it on a scale. You can yeah, see exactly. It. Yeah. What what part of the brain is responsible for the placebo effect? Well, again, it's probably some of these deep brain centers that the uh, same ones involved in, sw- in swearing. Mm. You know, that the same thing. It's coming from uh, centers that connect to emotional, re- uh, you know, to emotion. Yeah. The ability to turn that on and off consciously and willingly is... Is tricky. Yeah. You know, another thing I looked at over the years was um, healing shrines in the world like Lourdes. Mm-hmm. The, there's two interesting facts about that. You know, there, over the years, the Catholic Church has accepted very few healings as genuine that are, have like full medical documentation. And some of them are quite spectacular, like miraculous disappearance of widely disseminated cancer. No native of Lourdes has ever been cured. And the chances that a person is going to be healed there. Explain Lourdes. This is a place, a, a place in France where mm-hmm. you know uh, a uh, you know a child saw visions of uh, the Virgin Mary, and anyway, it's mm-hmm. grown up into a. There's a grotto, and uh, you know it's now a major Catholic shrine, and it has a reputation for healing. And thousands and thousands of people over the years have gone there. So as I said, very you know. There's relatively few reported healings that have been fully documented medically, but no native of Lourdes has ever been healed. And the there's something called the Lourdes phenomenon, which is fascinating, that the chances that a person is going to be healed at Lourdes or a place like that is directly proportional to the length of the journey traveled to Mm, get there. Yeah, I have heard that. So the length of the journey is is an investment of belief, right? Mm. So you're projecting belief onto the place and then you get it back. Yeah, that that seems like that could essentially work with any very, very difficult Absolutely. vision quest type Absolutely. experience that you're going on. You're looking for something and yeah. you have to earn it. Yeah. And you have to you're, to be fully invested. There yeah. has to be something going on in the mind that has you convinced this is a real effect. But the power is not in the place. The power right. is in, you know, in here mm-hmm. and you're projecting yeah. it onto that. But man, wouldn't it be better if you didn't have to go all the way to yeah, France? Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you how do you get that going? <laughs> like if someone said to you, "Okay, man, I don't want to go to Lourdes, but uh, what what should I do?" Well, one is that you could imagine you're going to Lourdes, and that's taking advantage of this function mm. of visualization. That's why these therapies like guided imagery seem to work. That yeah. you can imagine something and have it become real. 
guided imagery. Now, is there a specific, you know, like there's like transcendental medication, there's Buddhist Yeah, now this is a formal, it's a formal system of therapy that people are trained in where mm. you, uh, you know, you sit with a practitioner and they help you explore your mental imagery and uh, may give you specific kinds of images to work with mm. depending on the condition that you're dealing with. I would think knowing the fact that we we have real evidence that placebo effect works why isn't there more study done to try or more thought and more more people that are trying to emphasize this ability of the I'm the telling brain. you it's we're up against this problem that in the dominant paradigm in yeah. science and medicine we don't believe in non-physical causation of physical events but that doesn't jive with me because we do believe in the placebo effect like everybody says that oh it's just a placebo right you said that earlier right people always say that but it still works right but but we're not using it right we should be using it we should be it's using the, it. it's the meat of medicine <laughs> we want to make it happen more at the time god damn it <laughs> It's just that we're so flawed in our approach. It's really interesting. It's like the, the human body and the human mind is such an incredibly complicated biological entity, right? Our ability to consciously be aware of our, our, our life, our position in the world, our mortality, the, the, the insignificance of us in the greater scale. All those things are like there right now all yeah. the time, but yeah. we don't have any user's manual. Right. Exactly. It's like we have this incredible machine that can invent nuclear bombs and satellites, and there's no u user's manual. Uh -huh. No user's manual for the mind or the body, uh -huh. especially not in how to manage the body right. with the mind. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Figure it out, bitch. Wide open field. You're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> Few people have got you got to like find these masters, right? So if you think about the, the 300 and whatever million people we have in this country, yeah. how many of those people could guide you? towards a, a, a proper integration of mind and body and a, a positive way of interfacing with reality that's beneficial to you physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, not how, many, how many people? Not many. Is there a dozen? Not many. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Yeah, yeah I mean, very interesting. With all these human beings and essentially most of them trying to – improve in some way yeah. even people that fail on diets boy yeah. they'd like to get skinny even yeah. people that you know fail at school well i wish i was smart enough to graduate i wish i had enough discipline people people want to do better uh -huh. so there's this vast need for coaching that would lead to improvement yet almost i mean nothing to speak of and certainly not nothing large scale in any city that has this approach where look we are going to teach you how to better engage with the the material world around you and the, the better engage with reality itself that's going to leave you more spiritually physically emotionally fulfilled like that seems like that would be a big business it would now one way to teach this stuff is by example that if a person ah. exemplifies you know good mind body functioning they can inspire that in another person that seems like maybe the only way when, right? one strategy that i if i can do this if i have a patient if I can introduce that patient to someone who's had their condition is now better, uh -huh. that is a very powerful way to up their belief in the possibility of getting better. Yeah, that makes sense, which is why people love user testimonials. Right. But, you, but better if you actually meet the yes, person and sure. know, see for yourself. Yeah. But user testimonials are so huge for that razor. Right. You know, I exactly. was skeptical at first, yeah. but then I tried it. And boy, <laughs> I go, oh, he was skeptical just like me. Yeah, it's uh, – it, uh, to me, when I look at the 
giant number of people that are unhappy and displaced and just seem like they're left out of society. I was listening to, oh, it was uh, Johan Hari on Sam Harris's podcast, and they were talking about the number of people that are uh, happy with what they do for a living, mm-hmm. happy with what they do every day. And it was somewhere around 13%. Aww. Yeah. And then the number of people that were just like, it's okay, I just do it. Like, I don't hate it, but I don't love it. That was like in the 60%. Yeah. And then the rest of the people fucking hated what they did. So the vast majority, some ungodly number, you know, like 87% of people hate what they're doing. Oh, how sad. Or if they don't hate it, yeah. they don't want to yeah. be doing it, and yeah. they do it all the time. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that, that has to have a, yeah. a profound effect on all aspects of your life, right? I like what I do. Yeah. Well, you seem like you do. I do. You have a, a, a twinkle in your eye when you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's got to give you some satisfaction for sure, right? Yeah. Help all these people. Absolutely. And also to see a lot of the things that I've, uh, you know, believed for so long becoming more mainstream. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. And much more so now than ever before. Much right? more so now than ever before. Yeah. When you were doing those studies in the 1960s and you thought that marijuana was going to be legal in five years, how could you have ever, first of all, how could you have ever thought of the internet, right? That's the big <laughs> right. one, the distribution sure. of information. Sure. Yeah. That's that's the, really the big one, the decentralized uh, distribution of information. And that's that, by the way, in medicine has really – it's one of the things that's most leveled the playing field between doctors and patients. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of ended the authoritarian, paternalistic uh, kind of medicine that yeah. was when I grew up. Well, it's, it, it is a problem, right? It, patient comes they think they know everything yeah but i i have doctor. seen i have seen many many patients who have gotten exactly the information they needed and were able to take it to the doctor who didn't uh, know about it i mean i think on the whole it's a really good thing oh yeah for sure yeah. no no for sure i'm saying just like i get how doctors be worn out by it all You're the right. time you know listen to me i went to school <laughs> this is what it is well it's good for them to have to let go of that yeah well I, there's no way you could know everything. True. I mean, especially doctors. They must know that they have a specialty for a reason because yeah. the human body is so insanely complicated. <laughs> there's no way anybody is a general specialist of every single aspect of medicine. But we need more generalists. One of the problems yeah. is we've got too many specialists. And there's, really? Yeah. So that, someone like – would you think of a generalist as someone who sort of guides you towards various yeah. specialists? I'm a general practitioner. And I'm mm-hmm. very proud of it. There's uh, good data showing that states that have a higher number of prime, – of, uh, of uh, primary care physicians, family doctors have better medical outcomes than patients with a higher percentage of specialists. Th- but the problem that is also... specialties pay more. So we should be changing that. We should be providing financial incentives for people to go into general medicine. Yeah, it would also make sense, too, that by the time you get to a specialist, usually you're really messed up. Yeah. Right? And if you're going to a back specialist, you might have like a real situation that's been bothering you for a long time. Whereas you go into a general practitioner for a checkup. This is my you know biannual checkup. He's just kind of giving you the once over, making sure everything's uh-huh. okay. How you sleeping? How you eating? Drinking? Smoking cigarettes? What's going on? Just give, get a sense of you. But they, do they have enough time? Isn't that a big issue? Like how yeah, much it's time a huge do you amount spend? of time. I how mean, much time do you spend when you when you work with patients? I take an hour, and in our uh, clinics, uh, we do ninety minutes on a first session. That's got to be nice. Ninety That's minutes, so you nice. can get to know somebody. Yeah. But if you're getting in and out of that office in ten minutes, he's just here's a prescription. Get out of here. Yep. Next. You know, the um, there's been studies on the amount of time in a medical encounter when a patient starts to talk, how soon a doctor interrupts the patient. 
Do you have any guess what that is now? 13 seconds. You're right. Really? Yeah, 13 seconds. I use the (laughs) the same number of people that are happy with what they do. Ha! There you go. Uh, That's pretty good. 13 seconds. Wow. Yeah. Well, my my foot hurts and I've been... Okay, here you go. Exactly. Shut the fuck up. Take this. (laughs) Take this opium. Yeah, it's... Have you ever eaten in a true food kitchen? What does that mean? It's a restaurant, True Food Kitchen. No, I don't know what that is. Well, it's a restaurant that I started, and oh. there's now 25 of them. There's no one, kidding. We got two in two in L- out in L.A. and where uh, are they? One in Pasadena, where I'm going to go after the show and eat. Oh, I'm in Pasadena tonight. All right, I'm you want to go? Ice House there. Comedy Club. All right, what time? Uh, I'll be there for dinner if you mm. want to come over there. True Food Kitchen. Yeah, it's great. It's my, you know, it's delicious, healthy food. It's the wonderful food that conforms to good nutritional principles. It's an anti-inflammatory diet. And there's something for everyone. There's like meat. There's vegan options, vegetarian, mm. gluten-free. It's very delicious food. True food kitchen. And it's become an incredibly successful restaurant concept. Well, that's a great idea to be able to serve people things that you know for a fact are going to be healthy and nutritious, not just taste good, but good for you. But primarily it's food that looks great and tastes great and it mm. happens to – conform to good nutritional science. Yeah, that is possible. And that's a, a lot of people think you have to eat fried chicken. And, right. Well, come in there and yeah. try it. I would love to try it. All right, definitely. great. Um, how do you eat for the most part? You said you eat fish and you eat through the full First spectrum. First of all, I, I, I try to grow a lot of my own food. I love fu- oh, you know, nice. fresh stuff out of the garden. I like to cook and I invent recipes, which is, you know, a lot of the recipes in the restaurant are mine. Uh, oh, great. So I, uh, I like simple, um, you know, simple, quick, preparations that are really good. Do you fast at all? I have been, I've experimented with intermittent fasting Mm -hmm. and I haven't found a regimen that works exactly right for me, but I'm fascinated by it. I do uh, 18 or 16 and eight. And how often do you do that? I try to do it four days a week. Uh Uh-huh. You know, it's sometimes it's difficult when I travel. Yeah. But uh, even then I'm more accustomed to it than ever before. So if, you know, I eat dinner at eight o'clock at night. It's it's not hard to, to wait push, until push noon. Push it back, okay? Yeah, it's not hard. My body's just really used to it now. How long have you been doing it? About a year or so, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more than that. Yeah, you know? I think you know that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I will yeah. continue to experiment with it. I've, what I haven't done that I really have been thinking a lot about doing is doing a multiple day fast, just a water fast. For I've three done or that. Four the days. longest I've done it for is three days. Yeah, how was that? The first day was difficult. Um, or actually the second day was difficult. The third day, fabulous. You know, I mm. felt energized, high, my mind working very clear. The problem that I have is how do you come off it? Because mm. uh, it's like very easy to slide into eating, you know, to pizza. Krispy Kreme Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, there's protocols in terms of like small amounts of fruit. Right. Like right when you're coming out, yeah. like blueberries but or that's something to me, like that. But that to me was the tricky part was uh, transitioning off it. Go, yeah. It too fast. Fucking yeah, bell. Exactly. The buzzer right. rang. Yeah. <laughs> School's out for summer. Yeah. I, I get it. I mean, it's, especially if you feel like you earned it, right? Yeah. You didn't eat for three days. You want that pizza. Right. One of the things I found when I was doing it, having a uh, bowl of matcha. I, I normally my my pattern is I want to eat as soon as I get up. Mm-hmm. So that those morning hours are hard for me. But if I have uh, you know have my matcha, that helps. Do you exercise? I do. I swim mostly. Oh, swim okay. and walk um, every day. I find that once my body got used to fasted exercise, yeah. it, it became much much easier. Uh huh. 
Yeah, it became, uh, like, before I would almost have anxiety attached to it. Like, God, I can't work out without food. I have to eat. Uh And then when I started doing the intermittent fasting, and then I started doing fasted exercise, uh, I I think it was, I'm sure, if you probably measured me in terms of, like, uh, you did a bunch of, like, weightlifting exercises and measured my output, I probably would be able to lift more weights if I had some fruit first. Uh Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure I'd have a little bit more energy, uh-huh. probably measurable. But it's not difficult to have a, a vigorous workout in the morning when you're fasted. You just mm-hmm. got to get used to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I often do either hot yoga or run yeah. first thing in the morning. Weightlifting seems to be a bit of an issue. Weight, uh-huh. Weightlifting, I don't like. Uh-huh. I like to eat something before I lift weights. Huh. Yeah. But swimming? What about you? You ever fasted swim? Yeah, I have. I, it's fine. Yeah. No problem with it. Now, why did you get off the pot? You know, it changed for me, and and uh, I, I really used it regularly in my twenties and thirties. Uh, and when I first started using it, uh, it was great. I mean, I was like hilarious highs, laughing. You know, right. a lot of then then it turned after several years more introspective. You know, and and interesting, like creative, my writing for helping writing stuff like that, mm-hmm. and then gradually it transitioned into making me groggy. And uh, not doing much for me. And for, you know, it, it took me a while to separate myself from it. But in the last years of it, it was groggy and sedated. And it, I think mm. I changed. You know, my body changed. That's interesting. Have you ever tried different strains? I have. First of all, I don't like to smoke because, uh, you know, I'm really into breathing and I just can't mm. put smoke into my lungs. Right. I've tried uh, vaping. I don't, I just don't like the effect of it these days. Vaping? I, yeah. I yeah. just don't like the effect. You know, I don't like oral feels. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's too strong for me. Yeah. Well, when you're talking about that half of a half a grain of sand, yeah. putting you on Pluto rice. for 12 half hours. Half a grain of rice. Greater, greater rice. Yeah, a grain yeah. of sand. That'd be funny. Imagine that. Yeah. That would be like acid. Yeah. It, it was. Felt like acid. Yeah. Well, boy, I'll tell you, um, for me, the most profound and intense experience I ever have in the sensory deprivation tank are edible marijuana. Hmm. Edible marijuana in that tank, that combination is just, whoa. Huh. A real strong dose. Because um, have you done the tank at all? Yeah, but not with uh, not with pot, not with psychedelics. That Nothing? was a long time Just, ago, yeah. Well, even sober, you have some pretty yep. trippy experiences while you're in there. But uh, there's something about the um, – what, what I experienced with uh, edible marijuana is that uh, when you close your eyes, you get a lot of really cool visuals. Uh-huh. Like I've had it before when I take pot and then uh, get on a plane. Like I'll I'll eat right right when I park my car at the airport or when I'm leaving the house. Then it kicks in when you're on the plane. You're like uh-huh. yikes! Closing your eyes, huh? Something about closing your eyes. The you have like really brightly covered colored visuals oftentimes, and um, I get that a lot inside the tank. If, huh? If, with uh, with marijuana. Huh. I had that with that real strong stuff. I definitely yeah. had a lot of visual stuff. Yeah, that's what's weird about it, right? It's like it does become a psychedelic. Yes. Especially at high doses. Yeah. Why are they making that stuff so strong? Half a know, grain un- of rice. Un- unnecessary. What, how many milligrams did they say it was? I don't remember. Did they say? It wasn't much. Because they've got these damn Chiba Chews that are like 500 milligrams for one little cake. <laughs> one little thing like that, like 500 milligrams. Like, Why do you need that? Because you started out with 10, and then you, you worked your way up to 500. I mean, I guess there's a tolerance issue with yeah. a lot of folks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Do you um, 
do you regularly um, meditate? Or I try do. To, yeah? I do. Yeah, I, every morning when I get up. What kind of meditation? I first uh, practiced Zen, and then I uh, took some Vipassana training, and now I, you know, I get up, I sit down, I do my breathing routine, and then I just try to uh, focus on body sensations and uh, sounds in the room. And when I'm caught up in my thoughts, I just bring my attention back to my breathing. Mm. But you know, for me, I think that the sitting sitting meditation that's fine. But I think the goal is to be able to carry that state in all of your activities. Right. Uh, so for me, cooking is meditative. You know, chopping vegetables, mm-hmm. working with knives, and uh, that's very meditative for me. So when do you think that when you're having this meditation, whether it's Zen or whatever, that you're you're resetting the way you're going to go through life for the rest of the day? Hopefully. I mean, that's yeah. the goal so is not to carry just in that, that state. Moment. No, the goal right. is to carry that state throughout the day. Well, you kind of have a responsibility, don't you agree? Like you're a guy who's teaching people how to live a, a more productive, healthier life. You kind of have a responsibility to live your own productive, healthy yeah, life. Yeah, I better, right. I, yeah. I wouldn't feel right doing that if I didn't practice it myself. It's slippery, right? Yeah. But I don't tell people to do things that I don't do myself. Do you, when you have some thoughts about things, like something like a boga, would you be interested in trying it yourself? Like sure. Say, yeah. 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 I haven't had the opportunity to do it. It's supposed to be ruthlessly introspective. Uh-huh. I've never done it either. Huh. But I've had, I've had friends who had uh, pill problems who, yeah. who did it and cured them. But they said the ride is just 24 hours of like, what in the fuck am I doing? <laughs> And then once it's over, you have zero desire. You know the way that it's used traditionally in Africa, the root, uh, it's uh, these tribes that use it, it's hunters take it. And they remain motionless for many hours on it. Mm. And uh, animals come close. I mean, that always fascinated me. Hmm. That is, yeah. that is fascinating. Yeah. I wonder if uh, taking it from the root, I wonder if they have a – if it's – they're getting the exact same experiences they're getting in these clinics. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, to, to me, in terms of efficacy, if you look at the recidivism, the, the rates of uh, re- relapse, yeah. rather, yeah. I mean, they're so very, low. Very, very high. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Yeah. How successful that stuff is. Yeah. And yet, you yeah. know, nobody wants to talk about that. These All these clinics. Like, it's crazy how many rehab clinics there are. We need you for six months. Yeah. Really? Mexico says they kill it all in three days. <laughs> I'd go down there and yeah. get into an, an aboga clinic. Yeah. I want to find out more about it. Yeah. It's on my list. Well, listen, man. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks thanks for Good all talk. the information yes. that you've shared over the years. I want you to do studies on burning yourself. I will. And getting punched. I will. <laughs> report back to I me will. and uh, tell people how they can find out about you what is your website social media uh, stuff my website is drweil.com d-r-w-e-i-l.com and also check out uh, integrativemedicine.arizona.edu which is my academic website uh, see the range of that and matcha.com uh, for high quality matcha and we have a Special offer for your fans. If you go to matcha.com forward slash pages forward slash Joe Rogan, uh, your listeners will get a special discount code. And matcha's M-A-T-C-H-A, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too.